0: Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club, where we are harvesting the blood diamonds of celebrity gossip as ethically as we know how and delivering them to you as bright and shiny as humanly possible with like some ornamentals
1: on the side, which are our thoughts. Beautiful. And I have to say, before we go, I must do a trigger warning for this book. What am I trigger warning? My own self. I have never seen such a a polarizing memoir. I know that people are hotly anticipating this. I know that a lot of people have a lot of feelings going in. And I just want to warn you guys, we may not reflect your exact feelings about the book back to you. And if that is the case, respectfully and passionately, I implore you to please not take it up as a personal problem with us. I understand that you have feelings about Harry, about Meghan, about the Royals, about British media, about all of it. And I don't really like I have feelings about this book. Me and Ashley have done a lot of work, I think, to pretty much stay away. We have not said anything about Meghan Markle. I didn't watch the Harry Duck. I I am pretty Harry, Meghan, royal neutral. I choose not to let them in my lives. I will not die on this hill. If you come at us in the DMs looking for a fight, wanting to let loose. We are the customer service of the airline that is this book. Okay. I'm sorry that maybe your plane didn't take off and get you home for Christmas, but I cannot make the plane fly. And I beg you with my whole heart to know that I am not the problem. Can I say we are getting this plane home? We
0: read the book. We are reviewing this book. You wanted a sleek, gorgeous plane that looks the exact which way you wanted it. And we are flying a tiny little propeller jet that goes as fast as we can make it go.
1: <laughs> and so I'm just saying I've had this before. I think Emily Ratajkowski was another really polarizing person. If you do not hear from one of us exactly what you wanted to hear, please, please, please just say, I guess I don't agree to yourself. We can't change anything. So yelling at us is not going to change anything for anyone. I agree with that. We are just two people with two opinions and you can have your own opinion too. And I love that about the world. And I love that about literature. I love that there's so many books out there for everybody. And speaking of literature and (laughs) books out there for everybody... We actually are
0: launching a community book club, so if you have opinions on books and you want to discuss it in a more active sense, we will be starting a book club on our Geneva. The first meeting is February 8th. We will be reading Crying in H-Mart. Well, we will have read Crying in H-Mart, so if you want to be a part of the book club, read that now. Join our Geneva. The link is in the show notes, and if you want to be a part of breakout discussions, there will be a sign-up form. I'll send it on Geneva. I'll put it in the show notes. I'm really excited for this. So I think that people are rearing to chat about books. And that's where we're going to do
1: it. And most importantly, we are coming to cities near you. You guys, L.A. is completely sold out. It's sold out in a week. We have a New York City show up on sale When we did our November New York City show, it sold out in two days. So it seems really far away. It's in May, but please buy your tickets now. because It's in April, so that's actually already sooner than you think. Oh, my God. I had (laughs) no idea it was coming so close. Please buy your tickets now if you have any interest in coming. And then also we have Austin, Dallas, Seattle, and Portland are up for sale right now. I'm really excited. We'll sell out faster than you think. So please, if you have any interest, buy your ticket ASAP. I don't want you to be day of like oh shit i wanted to come because we will not be coming back to these cities for at least another year so this is the chance we love you we're so excited to meet you guys there's gonna be meetups beforehand i cannot wait and i'm so excited claire if you were to be writing a memoir about your week how would you describe last week's chapter the year has almost begun okay and by that i mean i really cling fast to the belief that The new year does not start until a couple weeks into January when you can get the ball rolling a bit. You can get the wheels greased a little bit. I agree. For the first time in my life, I bought three things to help with my New Year's plans. And I've never done that before. I don't really buy a lot of stuff off Amazon. I bought three things off of Amazon and took them over a week to arrive, which I felt like was not prime at all. (sighs) But I don't complain because I'm like, the workers are working as hard as they can. I can wait a little bit for my alarm clock. I got yesterday a gallon water jug. Wow. An alarm clock. And a phone locker that you put in and you put the time so that you can't touch your phone. Wow, you're going to be the most hydrated offline bitch there is. (laughs) I'm so excited. This week was a little... The problem is that you want to hit the ground running when it's the new year, but then all these things kind of come up that can't, you can't start your new life yet. And I think the first week, you're like, okay, it's kind of still vacation, so I can't go now. The second week was Harry week for us, which obviously threw off the schedule. So this is not the week for me to become a brand new person. But next week, man, when I am armed with my alarm clock, my locker phone, and my gallon water bottle, watch out. Nobody can stop me. You're never going to see me again. I'm like Sonic the Hedgehog, and I'm rolling away, and I'm collecting rings, and I can't wait to meet me In six to ten days. Beautiful. (laughs) Things are lining up. I can't wait. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and last week was a memoir, what would you call last week's chapter?
0: Thank you to the weather captains. Who control the weather? Mm
1: -hmm. We could not be more misaligned this week. I woke up today and I was like, well, I guess we'll never have good weather again. It's so dreary and I can't get out of bed.
0: Okay, but it's dreary, but it's not bitterly freezing cold. Okay. And that I'm grateful for because we had a couple days of like bitter freezing cold. And when I was in Chicago over the holidays, it was like literally one degree and you couldn't walk outside for a second without wanting to full on die. So the fact that it's been like 44 degrees is the best I could have possibly hoped for in January. And I'm really gauging it on a four January scale. Because I just moved, as you guys know, this week. It has changed my entire life. I am a whole new person. But one thing that is really nice about moving, even when you move like a mile within New York, you're like, oh my God, every restaurant is different. Every bar is different. There are so many places to discover. There's so much to see. Walking around with Bug and just like looking at all the places that I like might someday get one drink at, in not bitterly freezing cold weather. I've just been having a nice time.
1: That's really beautiful. I'm glad that moving was everything you had hoped it would be and more. It really has been. And it's fun for me because you moved and I see you every single day at your house. So now I live in a new neighborhood basically. We've seen a lot of cool new spots. I can't believe these places are six blocks from my house and I've never heard of them once in my life. I feel like we moved across the country. Did you see that part of the Drift? It's ski lodge themed. I've never been. Okay. (laughs) Should we get into I guess there's nothing to do but to do it. Let's go. Prince Harry... That's his full name. I think he should have gone by Harry Markle. I thought he had to give up the name Prince. I think he should have gone by Harry Markle, but I guess he has no other name. Spare. Prince Harry was born September 15th, 1984. He's currently 38 years old. And as this book came out just yesterday, he is that age right now. He's 38. I also want to jump off and say, I personally am not here
0: to shred Prince Harry I think that there's been a lot, as always, taken out of context online about how stupid this book is. And I really enormously disagree. I want to say up front that this is the best I could have expected from Prince Harry. I don't know what more people wanted from him other than to just like say a thing that isn't true. But I do have problems with his overall thought processes that we'll get into, but they're not... Based on, like, a Spice Girls quote.
1: The way that the headlines have been, like, he got spanked by an older woman. That is not the focus of this book. Honestly, the focus of this book is the British press. And so I think that is why the British press has avoided a lot of what this book is about. I also do want to say, I think with a lot of the memoirs on this podcast, we're able to be like, who asked for this? Why did you do that? And I think if you're going to come in and be like, why did you even tell us that? You have to take responsibility. If you have logged in, excited for this episode, you are the reason that this book exists. I can't fault him and be like, why is that detail matter? The detail matters because his entire life has been endlessly analyzed and dissected and discussed and watched by the people. And so, like, he wrote this book because you guys wanted it. I mean, I was talking to my dad and he's like, why now? And I was like, well, I can tell you exactly why now. That's the premise of this whole book. And so I guess (laughs) not that I'm not here to defend Prince Harry. I don't think he should be as important as he is, but I do think we have all in some way made him this important. So you can't fault him for writing this book. We were starving off our butts for this book. And that is why it exists. Yes. Even the people who are like, why is this guy still talking? I cannot wait to hear what he had to say. And I'm like, well, that's why he's still talking. You can't pretend that you're not participatory.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I will say this book is not like the shit show I think people wanted it to be, even though it's still
1: being painted that way. Here's what happened. According to Harry, it's very according to Harry. But this is his book. So there you go. It starts with the past is never dead. It's not even past by William Faulkner. And we begin with an intro that starts April 2020 at his grandfather's funeral. He's meeting up with Willie and Pa, as he calls Charles and William. They are basically like, let's see if we can figure out a solution to this family crisis we're in right now. The crisis being that. Megan and Harry had announced on Instagram in January of 2020 that they were departing with the royal system as they were currently a part of it. We will get into the details surrounding that announcement, but basically they were trying to see if they could work something out between them. They were alone. It seemed like they were not able to work something out between them. And what stood out to Harry was his father and his brother kept saying, But why did you leave? We don't even know why you left. And he says, if you don't understand
0: why I left, then you don't understand me at all. And I will say that is the truth of it that he won't acknowledge. And I think that one truth that comes through in this book is that the royal family is not a family. They are a business, and he was refusing to do his job within that business. They're purposeful ignorance about his feelings is the way their family is structured
1: i also want to make a note about how this book was covered because i think that is equally a part of this book you know this is a book about the press and then it was covered by the press and then it feeds more into how people feel and so literally on page six in the intro we haven't even gotten to the book yet he's talking about seeing willie and he goes i took it all in his familiar scowl which has always been his default in dealings with me his alarming baldness more advanced than my own His famous resemblance to mummy, which was fading with time, with age. In some ways, he was my mirror. In some ways, he was my opposite. My beloved brother, my arch nemesis, how had this happened? And it just makes me laugh that this was such a headline. And I get why it was. It is funny to call someone's baldness alarming. But I am like, oh, okay. So the New York Post read the first six pages. They're like, okay, we got it. We got our first tweet. Line it up. Throw it out there. Yeah. They really were like, we need you to come up with a headline from this leaked book within four minutes. And the guy was like, this is this word. It's like a bit of a zing, but it's like
0: he has a lot of anger in him. And so there are little crumbs laid to be like, I'm being my most reasonable self. I fucking hate you, but I'm I'm reasonable.
1: And that's how people talk. I mean this very much is if you met him at a bar and you're like, oh my God, what happened? It's talking to your toxic friend about why they broke up with their ex. And you're like, okay, I'm on your side. I don't know that this is the story, but hey, I'm on your side. So that's how it's told. It's told with that tone.
0: And I think he does a really interesting job of using this funeral to lay a lot of groundwork about his life. So he talks about why my wife and I fled this place in fear for our sanity and physical safety. So I think that this book does a really good job of laying out exactly sanity and physical safety. Those are two key points that he actively addresses He talks about his grandpa and the way that there was all this hubbub about Prince Harry growing a beard and how his grandpa liked his beard. And there was headlines saying, should the queen force Prince Harry to shave his beard? And I think that talking about this does a really good job of really showing you how obsessed the press has been with every single moment of his life from the day he was born. The fact that the press was talking about whether or not he should legally have to shave his beard by orders from his grandma
1: is crazy. Chapter one. Part one. This is a three-part book. And part one is starts with August 30th, 1997, which is, of course, the day that Diana died. He was at Balmoral. Sorry that I'm going to fuck up a lot I of British like words. I like
0: Balmoral is what I was saying.
1: I don't know. I also feel like the L and the M and the O could all be silent. Bem, bem. I don't know. Like, why is Colonel spelled that way? There's so many things that just don't make any sense. He was at the castle where his family spent most of their time especially during the summer and here he really tries to depict Somewhat successfully, I would say, we're just normal little kids. You know what I mean? We were just two young boys catching frogs, running around. No different than if he had grown up on a farm or something. I have to say, this book is well written, I think, in that they really try to slip in this way of making him not that much different than you. I think they have a couple little turn of phrases that are clever, where he says, There's some reporting that we journeyed by the royal yacht from the Isle of Wight to the castle. The yacht's final voyage. Sounds lovely. And his way of being like, I don't remember it. That's what they say. Must have been nice. And I'm like, you can't must have been nice to your own self. (laughs) We can must have been nice to you. But by like removing himself from the memory and the experience of it, I feel like he tries to put himself in the position of you who's also hearing about it for the first time. And making him just a regular guy. And I'm like, buddy, you're not a regular guy. You were on the yacht just because you can't remember it. If I was seven and on a yacht, I'd remember it. That's the difference. Yeah. And so that's the other thing is he like really covers his tracks. He caveats
0: by saying I have trouble remembering things. My issue, especially since my mother's death, has been my brain organizes things in a completely different way ever since that moment. He talks about that Faulkner quote, how he discovered it. The past is never dead. It's it's not even the past. When I discovered that quote not long ago on BrainyQuote.com, I was thunderstruck. And that's how he discovered
1: Faulkner. I thought, who the fuck is Faulkner and how is he related to us Windsors? So he really, I don't know how to say this. He's not smart. And I think separately, because these are not one of the same, he's not educated. Even though he has gone to the most expensive, prestigious middle and high schools in the world, he is not a man who is well-read. He is not a man who has studied up... He is not somebody versed in the theory of anything. He's gone to the best schools, but he is not a thinker. But I think like in addition to not being a thinker, he's not a memorer too. You can go to the best schools and have read Faulkner and not understand it. He went to the best schools and he was like, I never once read Shakespeare. And I'm like, how? How did you get through school? and not? He doesn't know things either. But he got an education that was prestigious. He was inside of buildings where people were educating. Yes.
0: (laughs) So he's talking about his memory and lack thereof. And he introduces you to what his childhood looked like. It was idyllic, but pretty normal. And he really hammers in the fact that he was the spare. So he says from the moment he was born, there was the heir and the spare. William was the heir and he was just the extra. He says, even in the delivery room, Pa allegedly said to Mummy the day of my birth, Wonderful. Now you've given me an air and a spare. My work is done. A joke, presumably. On the other hand, minutes after delivering this bit of high comedy, Pa was said to have gone off to meet with his girlfriend. His room, he says, was less luxurious than William's, but he didn't care, and it's like, it sounds like you care a little if you're bringing it up.
1: Well, I think not only did it manifest itself in things like, oh, he had the smaller bedroom. He says it wasn't merely how the press referred to us, though it was definitely that. This was shorthand often used by Pa and Mummy and Grandpa and even Granny. The air in the spare. There was no judgment about it. Also, no ambiguity. I was the shadow, the support, the plan B. I was brought into the world in case something happened to Willie. I was summoned to provide backup, distraction, diversion, and if necessary, a spare part. Kidney, perhaps, blood and transfusion, speck of bone marrow. This was all made explicitly clear to me from the start of life's journey and regularly reinforced thereafter.
0: He has this way of explaining the fanciest life you've ever heard, but being like, for me, it was still not the pinnacle because I was the spare.
1: Every once in a while, I will not say he doesn't go overboard. He does not break his back trying to seem normal or acknowledging his privilege. But every once in a while, I think somebody would say, hey, you got to make an acknowledgement. And he goes, every boy and girl at least once imagines themselves as a prince or princess. Therefore, spare or no spare, it wasn't half bad to actually be one. More standing resolutely behind the people you loved. Wasn't that the definition of honor, of love? Basically, his big thing is, yes, I was a prince, but nobody loves me. And I do think that. That sucks. I would not want to not be loved. But same. He has such a small world view of how bad it can get out there. Imagine not being loved and being poor. So he continues
0: to explain this pretty normal childhood that he had. And it is cartoonishly posh. He talks about having his dinner brought in on silver trays
1: footmen bone china it sounds posh and i suppose it was but under those fancy domes was just kitty stuff fish fingers cottage pies roast chicken green peas that to me actually makes it fancier that
0: to me makes it fancier that i think that if you get a fancy meal delivered on a silver platter and it's uh, what's fancy food what do they get in that model behavior movie cocovine no that's just chicken oh what's a fancy thing Duck confit Okay, this is tough for me to hear. <laughs> we get it. We know what fancy food is. We can imagine with our own brains. I guess I literally don't. <laughs> Caviar. Okay. That, you're like, yeah, that should be served on a silver platter with bone china. That's, that's what that food is. But to have chicken fingers delivered to you by footmen on silver platters is crazy.
1: The lawn was so perfect, every blade of grass so precisely mown, Willie and I felt guilty about walking across it, let alone riding our bikes. But we did it anyway, all the time. (laughs) Once we chased our cousin across the lawn, we were on quads, the cousin was on a go kart. So he kind of does these things of being like, it was so fancy, it was crazy. But obviously it wasn't so fancy to him because he was still doing it. It's such a funny turn of phrase to be like, we felt guilty. Never once stopped us. I'm like, but I don't think he felt too guilty. He talked about granny's piper who would just
0: kind of roam the halls because granny liked to be awoken with bagpipe music.
1: So this was just a regular night in the summer. They always spent the late summers up here in Scotland at this castle. It's where granny liked to be. And of course, this day he was woken up in the middle of the night by his father who sat on his bed and says, darling boy, mummy has been in a car crash. I remember thinking, crash, okay, but she's all right, yes. There were complications. Mommy was quite badly injured and taken to the hospital, darling boy. He can't believe it. The father said she didn't make it, but mostly what he remembers with startling clarity is that I didn't cry, not one tear. Pa didn't hug me. He wasn't great at showing emotions under normal circumstances. How could he be expected to show them in such a crisis? But his hand did fall once more on my knee, and he said, it's going to be okay. And then he left. Processions
0: begin. There's announcements the world is mourning for her.
1: But not in their family. The next day, it was business as usual. They all just went to the church. And he's like, I can't remember if the pastor or the priest, whoever runs their church, mentioned it. He's like, I am completely numb that day. But he knows that there was no family acknowledgement. There was nothing done differently. They went to breakfast. They went to church. And on their way back, they stopped outside the gate and it was said they needed to make acknowledgements. They had to get out of the car and look at all the flowers in front of the gate. And he remembers reaching for his dad's hand because he was so overwhelmed by all the clicking and flashing of the paparazzi. And then he had so much shame about giving them what they wanted, which
0: was a display of grief. Then a suspicion took hold, which then became a firm belief. This was all a trick. And for once, the trick wasn't being played by the people around me or the press, but by mummy. Her life's been miserable. She's been hounded, harassed, lied about, lied to. So she'd staged an accident as a diversion and run away. And this, for the rest of the book, his brain really waffles between thought of she would never do this to me, she would never abandon me, and this is what she must have done because her life was unbearable. And for the rest of the book, he calls her death her disappearance. And you know that he knows, but you also don't know that he knows.
1: And then he gets into the drama surrounding Diana's funerals and the royal reception of her death. This is where I think like his central conflict begins, where he feels so much loyalty and so much love and respect for his grandmother, who was not a Team Diana person. And I think a lot of his internal turmoil comes from wanting to be loyal to his mom, but also wanting to be loyal to his grandmother and knowing that you can't be loyal equally to both. It's a betrayal of one. And so in this part, he discusses the media attack of Queen Elizabeth One of the big scandals, I guess, was that they didn't fly their flag at half-mast. They didn't care that the royal standard never flew at half-mast, no matter what, that it flew when Granny was in residence and didn't fly when she was away, full stop. They cared only about seeing some official show of mourning, and they were enraged by its absence. That is, they were whipped into a rage by the British papers, which was trying to deflect attention from their role in Mummy's disappearance. Then there was a
0: decision to have Harry and William walk behind the hearse carrying Princess Diana's coffin, and... Princess Diana's brother was incensed by this idea.
1: All the aunts and uncles on the Spencer side were like, you can't have children walk behind the hearse. That's barbaric. The royal family did that because they needed to give the media something to leave them alone for how mad they were. And I think this begins the pattern and how it works with the palace of... It is a zero-sum game for them with the media. One of them is always going to be down for the others to be up. It's a seesaw. And if you want them to stop hating you, you have to feed them somebody else. So they fed them the little boys to be like, here, get your moment. If you want to see grief out loud, here are some like grieving little boys. Leave us alone. They were like, well, at least just let it be Will. Harry is so young. It must be both princes to garner sympathy, presumably.
0: Especially because of the way the palace was essentially complicit, if not the orchestrator of this death. (laughs) Later at the actual burial site, he breaks down and cries. And this is the only time he cries for about 10 years.
1: I felt ashamed of violating the family ethos, but I couldn't
0: hold it in any longer. He goes back to school almost immediately. Princess Diana died in August. August 30th. And he's back at school in September when school starts. He went to these boarding schools that felt, I mean, you went to boarding school. Didn't you go home sometimes? It felt like you go to these boarding schools and this is your family now. Like you see your parents at the term break. There's no visitation. It's like Harry Pottery in that you leave your family forever to be at this school.
1: (laughs) So he goes to Ludgrove School, which is a boarding school for middle school, and then he goes to Eaton in high school. At this point, he was in Ludgrove. I think he was in what we would call eighth grade, it seems, about seventh or eighth grade. William is already at Eaton, so he's there alone, and he says nobody really talks to him about his mother, and he's just there, and he is very depressed. So there's all these weird things about the boarding school about like how the women wash your hair for you and the dress codes and everything. We do not have time to get into the details of how fucking weird high end British people are. They are freaks. They are barbaric. (laughs) They are crazy. Everything they do is like the weirdest thing I've ever heard. All of this will be on the Patreon. We just can't go through every sentence with a fine tooth comb. We got to give you the overarching part of this book. The more wacky fun details of this book, it'll all be on the Patreon this weekend.
0: Finally, there's a break from school and he goes home to his dad. But his dad is like, we're going to South Africa. And he's like, could we just stay home? And his dad's like, nope, we've got to go meet Nelson
1: Mandela and the Spice Girls and he's like and the Spice Girls okay so they go and he's so excited because his dad is obviously very cold and distant and he wants his dad to love him as all children do they want their dad's approval so he's hopeful that this time alone will help them bond but he says the truth was Pa's staff had hoped a photo with him standing alongside the world's most revered political leader and the world's most popular female musical act would earn him some positive headlines which he sorely needed
0: on the way home I told myself the whole trip had been a smash not only a terrific adventure but a bonding experience with Posh. surely life would now be altogether different. It's really sad that he has these moments where, you know, when you are with a friend or like an acquaintance and you happen to take the train in the same direction or something and you have a great convo and you're like, now we're best friends. Like, I think we're really cool now. And then they don't follow you back on Instagram. That's his dad.
1: He says, other than fleeting moments, Pa and I mostly coexisted. He had trouble communicating, trouble listening, trouble being intimate face to face. On occasion, after a long multi-course dinner, I'd walk upstairs and find a letter on my pillow. The letter would say how proud he was of me for something I'd done or accomplished. I'd smile, place it on my pillow, but also wonder why he hadn't said this moments ago while seated directly across from me. Something crazy to me about royal families is I always thought it was just very instinctual and normal to, like, love your kids. But they seem to have bred it out of themselves. (laughs) They seem to have no fondness or attachment whatsoever to the babies that come from their loins.
0: The next couple of chapters really just go through his experience at school. He's singled out a bit for being a prince, which he really doesn't enjoy. But overall, it doesn't seem that notable. He does make one mention. He's talking about doing charity work at mental hospitals. There's a mental hospital near his school. And his dad jokes about one time going to a mental hospital where he was like, I'm the Prince of Wales. And another guy was like, no, I'm the Prince of Wales. And he's like, who knows which one of us is the Prince of Wales? Maybe that's
1: your dad. Maybe I'm the crazy person. And he'd laugh and laugh, though it was a remarkably unfunny joke, given the rumor circulating just then that my actual father was one of Mummy's former lovers, Major James Hewitt. One cause of this rumor was Major Hewitt's flaming ginger hair, and but another cause was sadism. Tabloid readers were delighted by the idea that the younger child of Prince Charles wasn't the child of Prince Charles. They couldn't get enough of this joke for some reason. Maybe it made them feel better about their lives. Never mind that my mother didn't meet Major Hewitt until long after I was born. The story was simply too good to drop. If Pa had any thoughts about Major Hewitt, he kept them to himself.
0: Later, Camilla starts playing a bigger role in their lives. I guess she had always been around in the background as Pa's girlfriend. And once Diana passed, she started moving Forward to be a little bit more prominent in their lives. She met both Harry
1: and William. He claims that they would forgive her and allow her to be a part of their lives because they were happy she made their dad happy. And this is one of the running themes through this book is that Harry just wants everyone else in his family to be happy. However, when other people in his family say that about him, he doubts them. He's like, Well, you don't really care if I'm happy, but I do just want you to be happy. But he says him and Will were like, listen, if you like her and she's making you smile for the first time, God bless but please do not marry her. Their one request was that they do not get married. He does address a lot of things head-on, but there are a number of
0: things where I wonder if those head-on moments are diversions from other things where he's not being altogether honest. And I don't think he owes it to us necessarily, but I do think that there's, I'm a little suspicious.
1: Camilla comes in the family and he says, they meet her, they don't like her, they don't love her. They're like, fine, if you're here, I guess it's good that dad likes you and it's good that you're not an evil woman. But we're not your biggest fans. You're not our mom. Shortly after our private summits with her, she began to play the long game, a campaign aimed at marriage and eventually the crown, with Pa's blessing, we presumed. Of course with Pa's blessing. I mean, obviously, he's on board with her being his wife. He married her. Stories began to appear everywhere in all the papers about her private conversation with Willie, stories that contained pinpoint-accurate details, none of which had come from Willie, of course. They could have only been leaked by the other person present. And the leaking had obviously been abetted by the new spin doctor Camilla had talked Pa into hiring. So Camilla enters the family. Everybody fucking hates her in the world, right? So she has her and Charles hire this new PR person. And essentially, I feel like Harry tries to make it seem like this is where it all began. The tit for tat with the press of I'll give you my son if you give me a good headline. I have a feeling it predated this. I have a feeling
0: this is just the way things were. We talked about the royal family being high school, essentially. The freshmen get hazed, and then you just keep at it. You keep playing the game, and then you're a senior, and you get to control the narrative. And it feels like Charles was playing the game for a long time, and he was like, okay, now I'm in charge. He still had to answer to the queen, but he was in a much higher position where he could say, like, all right, we need to get a good narrative turning around me Let's fuck with the freshman, the freshman being his children. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and specifically they really put place it on her. They say that she wasn't the evil stepmother, but she did essentially send them to press sporting school or the equivalent thereof by saying, Okay, hang them out to dry. I also think one thing about this book that it does, I don't know if it means to or not, but it makes you go, okay, a lot of what the press is saying is true then, because the amount of times he's like, How did the press know they were dead accurate? And later he's like, everything they say is a lie. I'm like, except for all those things that seem to be dead accurate.
0: <laughs> yeah, it seems like they were just, like, mean. And there's no reason for those things to ever be printed. They were, however, true. Not everything, obviously, but some of it. So he's at Eton. He's having a hard time because it's a very prestigious school. And he is not a prestigious learner. Also,
1: he's not allowed to talk to his brother. Willie has specifically said, pretend I don't know him. He would go in there. They happen to live in the same house. Will would not talk to him at all. He's like, I was back at the bottom of the barrel. He's very depressed at the The time. The only
0: time he talks to Will at school is one time when his friends were like, wouldn't it be funny if we shaved your head? And Harry was like, yeah, that would be so funny if you shaved my head. So then he lets his friends shave his head and he looks insane. And so he goes running to William's dorm and is like, help me. And William's like, yeah, I can't do anything about this. You look hilarious.
1: Since he was a child, he's always had security and electronic panic alarm that he carried with him at all times he mostly has a normal experience at the school except for that he is the only one who shouldn't be there well I guess I'm sure there's other rich kids who shouldn't be there but it is a very strenuous academic course load and he cannot handle it any which way and he knows that he's like I shouldn't be here I have to just get through it he's not trying his best but he never wanted to try his best he didn't ask for that he starts smoking cigarettes eventually here he graduates to weed him and his friends are kind of like The kids in the bathroom smoking weed all the time. He also gets really into
0: sports because he has a lot of pent up anger and he is not afraid of getting hit. And that makes him very good at rugby.
1: This is where the headlines about him start to turn. I guess until now he had been truly a child. And of course, everybody had felt so bad for the boys who had lost their mother and then had to walk behind her carriage. But when he is at Eaton, this is when the headlines start coming out that are mean about him. So the first one is his head gets shaved. They don't even have a photo, but somehow it gets leaked to the press and they start calling him Skinhead Harry because he shaved his head. He breaks his thumb playing rugby and it's splashed all over the news. The prince has had an accident. They make it seem like he might die. Is this where they start calling him Prince Thicko? It also says coming out that he's like the naughty one. He's not doing well. For some reason, his report card is... Public domain, it seems. So people know he's struggling in school. People know that he's getting caught smoking weed. They can't ever find proof, really. But
0: naughty became the tide I swam against, the headwind I flew against, the daily expectation that I could never hope to shake. I don't want to be naughty. I want to be noble. I want to be good, work hard, grow up, and do something meaningful with my days. But every sin, every misstep, every setback triggered the same tired label and the same public condemnations, and thereby reinforced the conventional wisdom that I was innately naughty. And that is hard for a kid to shake and I think it is sad that he started in this position where there kind of is no winning once people think of you as naughty because then anything you do everyone's like there he is just fucking around but I think throughout this book there is this refusal to acknowledge that there is a lot of bad that comes with the fact that it's because he's a fucking prince and I think being a kid picked on I think that that crosses a line but this exact same thread carries through the entire book. And there isn't a difference in his mind throughout any of it, really. And so it's, it just is hard to reconcile.
1: Yeah, I agree with you about the overall tone of the book. He doesn't seem to acknowledge that some of it is just par for the course and some of it does cross a line. And I think if he had said, these are the boundaries, of course, being a public figure, you're going to be scrutinized. But some things go against like my human rights. Some things are too far below the belt. I hesitate to criticize him in this section because i actually do think it's fucked up to be picking on a minor
0: i agree that it's fucked up to be picking on a minor
1: part in like this first part i don't want to be like yeah well you're a like he didn't ask to be a prince he didn't ask for any of this he was born this way and he is a minor i do think it's fucked up that they're calling him stupid publicly i agree you know i feel bad
0: that as a kid you feel like the whole world is watching you to be like what way is he gonna fuck up next
1: as a royal, you were always taught to maintain a buffer zone between you and the rest of creation. Even working a crowd, you always kept a discrete distance between yourself and them. Distance was right, distance was safe, distance was survival. Of course, family included distance as well. No matter how much you might love someone, you can never cross that chasm between, say, monarch and child or heir and spare, physically but also emotionally. It wasn't just Willie's edict about giving him space. The older generation maintained a nearly zero tolerance prohibition on all physical contact. No hugs, no kisses, no pats. Now and then maybe a light touching of cheeks on special occasions. The only place that this ever seemed to dissolve was when his family took trips to Africa. It felt like there he was able to be loved. They were able to hug. They would get around a fire and actually be very warm with one another.
0: And it creates this real affinity for going to Africa to feel at home.
1: And not with his family, but with... The, the guides and the tour guides and the, the trackers and the people that they were with. Here he felt like for the first time he felt like loved and was shown affection.
0: Making people laugh is really important to him. So in this one night when he's gathered with the whole family and making everyone laugh and his gangan is really giving him the credit that he wants. He says, this is my family in which I, for one night at least, had a distinctive role and that role for once wasn't the naughty one. So when his family is, is in their most formal stature... He's the naughty one, the spare, whatever. And when they're just being people, he'll always point out these moments where everything was good and everyone viewed him as something more than just the bad one. That is how it works. On duty, he's kind of a sacrifice and off duty. They're having a fun time and he wants to just be off duty. And you're like, yeah, you just don't want to be in that formal position. That's a, a position you never liked. And then 9-11 happens. He just says that. He's at school and he's like, oh man, what can we do to help? And they're like, I don't know, man, you're at a really posh British boarding school. Probably nothing. I also want to read this really funny line. He's still rambling about what school was like. Him and his friends were smoking pot in the bathroom and then we'd all head to one of our rooms and giggle ourselves sick over an episode or two from a new show Family Guy. I felt an inexplicable bond with Stewie,
1: profit without honor. That's such
0: a high high schooler thing to say that I can't believe he's writing it as an adult.
1: He has a lot of stunted stone teenager moments in this book where I'm like, you needed to go to college or to have a real job. So someone could be like, you're fucking stupid. Like he talks about how his brother bullied him, but not directly. He needed less passive aggressive, ignoring bullying and more head on. Don't compare yourself to Stewie from Family Guy. Bullying? You're an idiot. (laughs) He's very like california stoned at one point in high school he looks at the window and sees a red fox and he's like you and me man i'm more connected to you than any student at this school i'm like that's truly not true and if you believe that you have more in common with a fox in the woods than you do with any other human being that's a you problem you need to reevaluate yourself <laughs> But throughout this high school time, he was very depressed. And I think nobody had the words where he lived to say that. The illusion of mommy hiding, preparing to return was never so real that it could blot out reality entirely. But it blotted it out enough that I was able to postpone the bulk of my grief. I still hadn't mourned, still hadn't cried except for that one time at her grave. Still hadn't processed the bare facts. Part of my brain knew, but part of it was wholly insulated. And the division between those two parts kept the parliament of my consciousness divided, polarized, gridlocked, just as I wanted it. Sometimes I'd have a stern talk with myself. Everyone else seems to believe that mommy is dead, full stop. So maybe you should get on board. But then I'd think, I'll believe it when I have proof. He also admits that whenever him and Willie were together and Willie would try to talk about Diana, he would shut it down. He's like, I wasn't ready. I didn't want to talk about it. If Will brought him up, I changed the subject. And I do think there's moments like this where he kind of acknowledges that he wasn't a perfect brother to Will either. Because he pretends he is. He's like, I would have always stood by his side. I never would have told him not to hang out with me. And I'm like, of course, because you were the younger brother. Yeah, Younger siblings never want to not hang out with their older siblings. That's the law of the land. But there were moments here, too, where he wasn't there in the way that I think Will wanted him to be. Exactly. There's a lot of brother rivalry here that he does chalk up to just regular being brothers. But, of course, when they're getting into a fight and he tells a story about his dad kicking Will out of the backseat and, like, putting him to the side of the roads for somebody else to pick him up, someone else from security, and Will being like, me, why me? Pa didn't feel the need to explain. Out. Willie turned to me furious. He felt I got away with everything. He stepped out of the car, stomped to the backup car with the bodyguards, strapped himself in. The convoy resumed. Now and then I peered out the back window. Behind us, I could just make out the future King of England plotting his revenge. So I do think something Harry hints at but never acknowledges full on is that there was a lot more pressure on Will. And even though Harry felt like he got a raw end of the deal all the time, the reality is the King of England is held to a higher standard than the spare. And I think. Will just had a lot less wiggle room and because of that he tried harder to obey and then was always resentful when Harry just acted out and kind of got away with it
0: yeah and I think that there is so much freedom I think that Harry feels almost neglected because he's like I'm the spare I don't matter whereas Will would look at him and say like oh you get like love a pure form of love because you aren't expected to do these things you're not being trained to be a cold hard cruel ruler and then This is a big moment where it's reported that Harry is a drug addict doing a lot of hard drugs in Club H, having lots of random sex. And he's like, I did actually have sex for the first time. And this is where he does a quick little paragraph on losing his virginity behind a pub. And it doesn't really go deeper than that. And you're like, all right. The way it
1: was reported and (laughs) the way the discussions have come out of it, I understand that there is a lot of analysis and criticisms to go around for this section. Like an older woman shouldn't take advantage of a high school boy, but I also think it was done because that's all we were being given and so people thought it was like this huge deal to him. In the context of this book, it is truly a blip. I don't think he feels he was assaulted and of course, I'm not here to say it was right or it was wrong, but it's such a small part of this book. It's almost nothing. There
0: are a lot of things in this book that he gives a lot of weight to. This is not one of them. It's just mentioned because he thought that his handler was coming to him saying, all right, the press is a hold of this story about you losing your virginity. Instead, the handler says, The press has a hold of the story about you being a ferocious drug addict. And he's like, I what? He's like, well, we'll just kill that story. Right. And this they don't. So this is the first time that I think his dad fully serves up Harry on a platter for his own PR spin. Mm -hmm. I think that there have been moments hinting at it, leaning into it before. But this is where. The spin doctor, Marco said, had decided the best approach in this case would be to spin me right under the bus. In one swoop, this would appease the editor and also bolster the sagging reputation of Pa. Amid all the unpleasantness, all the extortion and gamesmanship, the spin doctor had discovered one silver lining, one shiny consolation prize for Pa, no more unfaithful husband. Pa would now be presented as the harried single dad coping with a drug-addled child. So this was Harry specifically being painted down on the seesaw so that charles could be up
1: and so of course it comes down he's upset and he says he calls will for support i couldn't speak he couldn't either he was sympathetic and more raw deal harold at moments he was even angrier about the whole thing than i was because he was privy to more details about the spin doctor and the backroom dealings that had led to this public sacrifice of the despair and yet in the same breath he assured me that there was nothing to be done this was pa this was camilla this was royal life this was our life He's beginning to deal with the press more head on. The story he gives is his handler. Marco is like, listen, they say that they have a photo of you doing cocaine, that the editor is willing to lock up in a vault forever if you meet with him so he can tell you how dangerous your lifestyle is. And Harry he goes. It's impossible. It's not true. I've never done cocaine. There's no way I'm meeting with this guy. If I meet with him, I'm basically admitting it's true. I won't talk to him. And he walks away. And he pulls it off. And of course, he's like, I had been doing cocaine, but I knew they didn't have a photo. So I kind of called their bluff. And it was his first time. He's like, all right, Harry won. Press, I mean, press 1000, but Harry won. <laughs> I played the game well and I'd called the journalist bluff. He went silent. As suspected, he had no photo. And when his con game didn't work, he slithered off or not quite. He slithered into Clarence House and became very good friends with Camilla and Pa.
0: Then it's time for him to decide what he wants to do with his life, which I guess just being Prince Harry wasn't a good enough job he either had to like go to university or pick a thing he wanted to work at a fondue store and his
1: dad was like no probably not yeah he's like could I be a ski instructor and Pa was like no everyone agreed that he wasn't the university type and even though he didn't want to go to college he was like well you shouldn't say it if I wanted I could I don't know that he could have dude they finally pick on war he's like I would love to go to war and everybody was like great head up champ so he's on his way out of school and I just want to share this one last story about the press He's about to graduate, and one of the art teachers accuses him of cheating. And he's like, how could you cheat on an art project? And I'm like, actually, fair enough. How could you cheat on an art project to, like, copy someone else's painting? Isn't that what high school art is? But she brings it to the board. They review it. They say he didn't cheat. And he's like, listen, was I bad at school? Yeah, but I didn't cheat. But it's run in the press. And he goes to his dad, and he's like, you have to tell him it's not true. You have to say it's category False. The palace wouldn't let me. And this, as in most things, the palace stuck fast with the family motto, never complain, never explain, especially if the complainer was an 18-year-old boy. Thus, I was forced to sit by and say nothing while the papers called me a cheat and a dummy every day. This is the official start of that dreaded title, Prince Thicco. But I just feel like this is one of those things where, and it comes to what you were saying, part of being in the public eye is going to be people not liking you is going to be bad press. And going to people just, like, making fun of you. And I think that he needed, and he never developed in himself, kind of a thick skin to just say, all right, and I 100% agree, a lot of the way Megan was treated, a lot of the way Diana was treated, a lot, the things about the there children. There were things
0: that severely cross a line. But
1: because he isn't able to ever say some things are fair game or some things aren't that big of a deal and are just part of the public discourse, he, like – isn't great at making his point. I feel like he wanted to fight them on every single little thing to come out and be like, I didn't cheat on my art part. They would have let that go. You have to just deal with the fact that this is, your. you have
0: to deal with being called Prince Thicko because you are a little bit thick and you haven't proven otherwise. That's the thing is he'd be like, just tell them this isn't true. And it's like, it kind of is true though. You didn't cheat, but you are like definitely a little bit dumb. He wanted to fight the press on every single headline and you really can't do that. And I do think like later with Megan, Megan one time wore wore black nail polish and they called her a goth. And then they also said horribly racist things about her. And he's like, we've got to print retractions on all of this. And it's like, focus on the racism.
1: The goth thing isn't that mean. Obviously, his family is fucked up. And I think he doesn't trust them in their relationship with the press. And for very good reason. Because if my mom was selling stories to me the press, I'd be like, what the fuck? But at the same time, I don't think he trusts the wisdom in saying never explain never complain there is some wisdom to that to come out and be like i didn't shoot on my art project it gives it more life if you just let people move on they would have forgotten pretty quickly
0: like you're out of high school you're not going to college or you're out of whatever form and you're not going to university it's not that big of a deal you've got the degree you know and you don't need it you're a prince so before he's going to join the army he's going to take a gap year
1: a gap year from what nobody knows knows.
0: (laughs) he's gonna do half of it in Australia on a farm and half of it in Africa where he is going to kind of step into his mother's shoes and work on the AIDS crisis
1: before he goes there's a headline saying that he hooked up with a page three girl he's like a page three girl was a really rude way of talking about women who were topless in the sun they were all like can you believe he's slumming it And he says the snobbery the classism was nauseating. the out-of-order priorities was baffling and i love that he's like always one to stick up he's like listen a hot bitch can come from a trailer park or from a castle and i do not discriminate <laughs> and that is honorable he's like who are you to tell me she's not hot because she's poor so he goes out to australia
0: he's working on a farm it's really hard to raise cows in australia because there's not a lot of
1: rain and grass he's in the outback and he's with his mom's former roommate and their family truly doing cattle work they're rounding
0: up cows um I rarely knew exactly why we were moving these cows or those but I got the bottom line cows need their space I felt them oh that's a
1: bit thicko. I found this book it was quite dense and it was like filled with a lot of information it's about 400 pages a little over I found it quite readable it was definitely pretentious in the way it was written. It was written like an uneducated person trying to seem smart. He was a bit insecure that they're coming off dumb, so they have to use as many big words, as many like formal sentence structures as possible. I also think he comes from a super formal place. I think this is probably the language... He knows to be appropriate writing language. Like, if you want to say something and be taken seriously, you have to say it in the most formal capacity. And I, for the most part, liked it. I think it was actually pretty well written. I think the way that he told these stories, I think he went quick. I think he covered a lot of ground. I think he did a good job of giving you a feel for the vibe in addition to the actual particulars of every event. That being said... The book is told in like tiny little excerpt chapters. It's actually very similar to Jeanette McCurdy's. Like it's about one to three pages is how much each of the chapters are. And they all end on very like whimsical, thoughtful little last sentences. Kind of like the snake bled dry. I was dry too. I have to say in order to like this book, you do have to barrel through those. They are pretty ridiculous. It's very Matthew McConaughey light. It's a little bit of looking for meaning in everything. And I kind of just had to at one point go, there's no meaning here. Move on, Claire. You can't get bogged down in this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it really is McConaughey-esque in the way. He is a guy who has not read that many books, so he doesn't know that a lot of the ideas that he just came up with aren't new ideas. Like the idea of feeling lost in your own life, the idea that like no one understands you. He's
1: like, has anyone felt this way before? Probably not. He's out in the Australia outback. He's helping raise cattle in about six weeks, six to nine weeks. Someone finds out where he is and they're swarmed with paparazzi. Very quickly, he's like, well, I got to get out of here. He doesn't want to ruin other people's lives. I kind of think this is a real cop. He's like, oh, I got to go for you. (laughs) I would hate to stick around and ruin your lives. So I'll get out of this hot, sweaty waking up at 4 a.m. and raising cattle lifestyle. So he goes home and he decides to move up the second half of his gap year, which is going to South Africa.
0: He does one interview in Lesotho because he says, this I agree with. In the spirit of service, I agreed to perform a task that might otherwise have been unthinkable in my interview. If I wanted to shine a light on conditions here, I had no choice. I have to cooperate with the dreaded press. And that is true. This is... The other side of it. You take a hit from the press so that you can then use them later for the things you want to use them for. He says, I said the children in Lesotho were in trouble and I loved children, understood children, so naturally I wanted to help. And he jokes around a bit in the interview. They say, why do you love children? And he says, my incredible immaturity.
1: I have to say, to be like, why do you love children is one of the dumbest questions I've ever heard.
0: Yeah, also to be like, what speaks to you about the AIDS crisis? It's like, so he does this interview and... He jokes around, which obviously gets spun and people make fun of it. One thing I think is really interesting is that he is quite bad at interviews. He is not media trained for someone whose life is so media focused because I think that they expect like you're just born into this. You watch the example and then you follow into that example. And there's so much like unspoken rule about the way to handle press that he does not pick up on. He's not good at it. He is not great at public speaking it seems and he just like never really says what he meant to say and he like beats himself up about it afterwards he's like once again I was spun the wrong way and it's like you also just like had the chance to talk and you didn't say what you wanted to say I don't
1: think it's hard to figure out I think he lets his pride get the best of him yeah when someone says what do you love about children it's not difficult and or brain surgery to say you know it's just important they're so innocent and young and we need to make sure that they have a good future I get that it's a stupid question the normal reaction would be like to say something fucking stupid because it's a stupid question. Right. That's not media training. That's just like self-discipline and maturity. And he's not self-disciplined or mature. Or willing to take on the grit work. Like I think it's that thing of every job is still a job. He doesn't feel the need to have to work hard at anything. He sh- he's like, I'm doing a good thing. That should be enough. Everything is still a job. Yes. There's nothing on earth that isn't going to have a shitty part. And he does kind of think that he should get to do something that doesn't have a shitty part. Throughout his whole life, he thinks
0: that there should never be a sacrifice he has to make for the good parts. And his life does have a lot of tragedy, but also a lot of good parts. He's a fucking prince. His dad was upset that he did this interview. Pa was dead set against me addressing the topic. He didn't want either of his sons speaking about mummy for fear it would distract from his work and perhaps shine an unflattering light on Camilla. And I think this is a really important little section that he brings up a few different times. His dad really does not like them discussing Diana with the press. He does not like them doing anything that will not have him and Camilla be the center of attention and the center of good. Then when he's in Africa, he texts a girl that he met one time and they thought that she wouldn't answer because they thought Prince Harry calling sounded like a prank. But she answers
1: And she comes, and they end up getting along. It's Chelsea Davies, and this begins their few-year relationship. They get along because she is unpretentious. She doesn't really care about the royal stuff he claims – She doesn't have throne syndrome, which is it was similar to the effect that actors and musicians have on people, except with actors and musicians, the root cause is talent. I had no talent, so I'd been told again and again, and thus all reactions to me had nothing to do with me. They were down to my family, my title, and consequently, they always embarrassed me because they were so unearned. I'd always wanted to know what it might be like to meet a woman and not have her eyes widen at the mention of my title, but instead to widen them myself using my mind, my heart. With Chelsea, that seemed like a real possibility. Not only was she uninterested in my title, she seemed bored by it.
0: I guarantee you she wasn't bored by it, but maybe she was just cooler than the other girls.
1: Yeah, I also think she seemed like a real party girl. They like loved to just fucking get drunk together.
0: (laughs) They hear about a party happening at a camp nearby. And so they go and it's a film set and he meets these people, Teej and Mike, who become just essentially surrogate parents to him. They party all night and then they're like, "Okay, tomorrow we have to work on our film. And he's like, great, let me carry boxes for you. And they're like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, I'll just carry stuff. And so then they're like, all right, we take you in. You're our son now. And that it just begins like a lifelong relationship. Chelsea has a hard time with the press, the stalking. And he advises Chelsea to treat it like a chronic illness, something to be managed. But she wasn't sure she wanted to have a chronic illness. And this is the first significant relationship he has that is significantly affected by the press because it's his first adult relationship. It's the first person he's ever publicly
1: really been with. And they hound her. They're obsessed. Meanwhile, he's starting to look to get into the army. So he has a, to take all the tests and stuff. He passed everything with flying colors. I was delighted. My trouble concentrating, my trauma over my mother, none of that came into play. None of that counted against me with the British army. On the contrary, I discovered those things made me all the more ideal. The army was looking for lads like me. What's that you say, young man? Parents divorced, mom's dead, unresolved grief or psychological trauma? Step this way. Oh, I don't know how I feel about that. So some... Okay. This book is a lot about his time in the Army, which I guess makes sense. He spent a lot of time in the Army. He's really proud of it. And I'm not saying he needs to not be proud of it, but he is very uncritical of it. And even to make a joke like that, like the Army loves people that are mentally unwell. I'm like, I don't know, man. Do you have a second thought about that? Do you think that that's good or do you think that that's bad? Do you have any thoughts whatsoever on the fact that this life or death situation is preying upon kids
0: who have troubles we'll get into that later because there's another 100 pages about his time in the army. First, we have Camilla and Charles's wedding. Of course, Harry and William were not interested in that happening, but it did
1: anyway. He claims that he's like, we just wanted them to be happy. We were mad they were getting married, but whatever. At least Pa was happy. He also has
0: this thought as his dad leaves with Camilla. I thought good for you, though also goodbye. He knows that his dad officially marrying Camilla is his dad stepping away from being his dad. But also at this point he has become an adult. I understand what he wants, but I think that he has a lot of these desires that are not founded in any evidence of who his family is and has ever been.
1: I hear you. I don't know. I can't be like, I can't fault a 19 year old for wanting their dad to love them. No, I can't fault him either. It's hard to be like, be logical. Your dad's never loved you. No, get a grip
0: and i'm not even saying that at all i'm just saying that it like makes me sad when i read these types of books where they keep on like pining for something where as the reader you're like damn he never was
1: there but i think here there's this emphasis on once you couple up that is your island even within the family and the family spends a lot of time together i guess professionally they have to be together all the time they're like the kardashians It's funny, they're like the Kardashians, but they're opposite in that in the Kardashian world. The core six. Yeah, that is the family. Your nuclear family that you were born into is your forever family, and your romantic partner comes and goes. It very much feels like in Buckingham Palace or wherever they live, who you're married to, that's your partner, and it's you guys against everyone.
0: Yeah. And when you're without a partner, you're like a lesser.
1: Yeah, you just have fewer resources. So, January 2005, Kate is brought into the fold as. Willie's girlfriend. I liked seeing Kate laugh. Better yet, I liked making her laugh and I was quite good at it. My transparently silly side connected with her heavily disguised silly side. Whenever I worried that Kate was going to be the one to take Willie away from me, I consoled myself with thoughts of all of her future laughing fits together. And I told myself how great everything would be when I had a serious girlfriend who could laugh alongside with us. Maybe it would be Chelsea. It's 2005. A friend is having a party. The theme is colonialism which feels a little on the nose for literal colonialists at the highest degree they invite him to this
0: colonizer party and he's like i don't even have any colonizer clothes and it's like dresses yourself literally just be you man but instead he goes to a costume shop and he picks out a couple of outfits he calls will and kate and he says should i wear this british pilot's uniform or should i wear this nazi uniform and will and kate laughed and said maybe the nazi uniform." So he rents it. He puts on a Hitler mustache and goes to the party dressed as Hitler. He says nobody at the party looked twice at his costume, but then someone took a photo and sold it.
1: And they didn't even sell it to be like, look at the prince dressed
0: up as a Nazi. They sold it to be like, this is a party where the prince is. And then they were like, is he dressed as a
1: Nazi? And And they were like, yeah, why?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So he has a couple of moments throughout this book where he does something really racist or ignorant and he always explains it by being like i literally didn't know and no one told me and you're like i get that but maybe that's the problem are we not going to look at that as a problem that you were like a 20 year old man at a party full of people who like didn't think nazis were bad i don't know that's like a reflection perhaps to be had at a later date and then you know everyone gets really mad at him he's like i just didn't know i'm sorry And he, like, meets with a rabbi, and the rabbi is, like, just learn and grow and, like, continue to educate people about the Holocaust. And he's, like, you're totally right. And I'm, like, but have you?
1: I have to say, and then five years later, he was in Germany, and he's like, I finally took the rabbi up on his idea, and I went and looked at the museum. It's so fucked up what was over there. I was, like, it took you five years to get to the Holocaust Museum? It should have
0: been faster. And I'm sure there's a Holocaust Museum in London, to be honest with you. He urged me not to be devastated by my mistake, but to instead be motivated To become a teacher of this event, Henners, so his friend who passed away who wanted to be a teacher, I thought would have liked the sound of that. Henners with his love of teaching. And it's like, okay, that is so beautiful. Have you taught anyone?
1: Seems like no. He also <laughs> talks about like calling his father and his father's always like, "Ah, oh, darling boy, how could you be so foolish? My cheeks burned, I know, I know. Foolishness of youth that he remembered being publicly vilified for youthful sins and it wasn't fair because youth is a time when you're by definition unfinished. You're still growing, still becoming, still learning. And he's like, I had had intimate conversations leaked. Past girlfriends have been interrogated.
0: What the fuck are they teaching with Eton where they skip the Holocaust?
1: <laughs> the royal family does not care about any actual ramifications of their actions to them it's all good press or bad press and all press moves on and that's kind of his dad's attitude
0: yeah that was like a tough read to be honest with you
1: around this time too he's about to go into the army and he asks one of his handlers to get him proof from the police that his mom is actually dead and the man is like I don't think you should look at the photos and he's like I want to look at the photos and so he brings him some of the less upsetting ones of the crashed car. His mom slumped over the steering wheel. And he's like, she looks so beautiful. I still didn't really believe she was dead. She looked fine in the photos. But the one thing that upsets him is the fact that she's like in front of this glow. And he's like, where is that light coming from? And, it, and he realizes it's the flash of paparazzi light bulbs. And he's like, even in her death, the fact that these people continue to take photos. So he heads off to war.
0: He had previously been training and he hurt himself and he got delayed even further. And everyone was like, wow, Harry is using some measly excuse of a scratched knee to delay his time at war. What a fucking coward. So he has a real thing to prove about the fact that he's not an idiot and he's not a coward. He really wants to be on the front lines. It's really important to him to like get into the action, which is, I think, where I take issue with his hunger for war.
1: I guess that's not where I take issue. I guess I think if you believe in war, I'd rather you be out there than believing in it from behind your walls. I don't have a problem with him being like, if I'm going to be in the army, I should actually be contributing. I also would have rolled eyes harder at if he had gone to boot camp and then been like, and then I went home and I walked around like if cause yeah, he's yeah. not questioning it either way. And I am kind of like, no, good on you. If, you. if this is what you think men and women from your country should be doing, then you should be out there, too. And he did that. Yes.
0: Okay, that I respect. So let's like run through this next war part and then I'll explain what I mean. Just before he goes to war, he's in Paris for the first time and he asks his driver to take him through the tunnel where his mom died. This is, you know, further on his quest to really get to the bottom of what happened. Apparently his mom was going 65 miles an hour, much slower than they originally reported, 120 miles an hour. There was a bump that they hit that supposedly sent their car on a swerve And that's why they crashed. And so
1: he asks the driver to go through the tunnel at 65 miles an hour. And he says, we barely felt the bump. He went through it twice. And he goes, the story we were told, because I guess they sued the paparazzi. And they said, actually, it was the driver who died in the accident's fault because he had alcohol in his blood. And he was going 120 miles an hour. And it was a tricky tunnel. And it was just an accident. And it was a swerve. And he killed them. And Harry's like, I drove through it twice. It's a straight shot. He confides in William. Like, I went through the tunnel. And Will is like, I've also gone through that tunnel. And they both come to the conclusion, how could the paparazzi have been found innocent? How could they say it was the driver's fault? And they want the palace to go back and do a second inquisition.
0: After all these years, we said, and all that money, how? Above all, the summary conclusion that mummy's driver was drunk and thereby the sole cause of the crash was convenient and absurd. Even if he had been drinking, even if he was shit-faced, he wouldn't have had any trouble navigating that short tunnel. Unless paps had chased and blinded him. Why were those paps not more roundly blamed? Why were they not in jail? Who sent them? And why were they not in jail? Why indeed? Unless
1: corruption and cover-ups were the order of the day. Personal conversations that Harry had been having, a voicemail that Willie left Harry, all get leaked to the press. And it starts freaking them out in this way of like, who in our inner circle cannot be trusted? They don't know if it's their bodyguards. They don't know if it's their closest friends. And they start to develop a paranoia that makes them understand better how their mom felt. And they're just constantly on edge, like somebody is always betraying us. And it doesn't make sense.
0: So he does his training. He loves... He loves training. He loves like the sense of structure it gives him. But he is told he cannot go to the front lines because there was a plan for me. The insurgent leader said they were going to kidnap me and decide what to do with me. Torture, ransom, kill. So there was a danger in him being physically on the ground at war because he... Was a target and it put the people around him in danger. So when he's told he cannot be on the ground at war, he falls into another state of depression. It wasn't simply that I felt sorry for myself. I worried about my team. Someone else would have to do my
1: job and I'd have to live forever wondering the guilt. What if they were no good? This is the kind of thing where I'm like, Harry, did you think you were the best army man there had ever been? You were 22 or 23 at this point. I love that your fear of not being out there is that somebody might not be better than you, that you would have done a better job. I'm like, I think the job would have been the same. You were only a risk. I think like you weren't so good at your job that it outweighed the risk factor of you being a very specific and explicit target of the Taliban. The
0: paparazzi is hounding him. He's going out a lot around this time because he's, you know, sad.
1: He only ever says he was going out because he was depressed, which I believe. Like, I know that people try to drown their sorrows in booze and gals. But also there's that other thing about being 19 years old and a prince and, like, you were just partying.
0: And he really only ever paints it as, like, there was a time when I was going to the clubs and it's, like, you were known as a party boy for, like, 12 years He's talking to a colonel and says, I need to find a way to get back into operations or else I'm going to have to quit the army. I'm not sure, Colonel Ed believed my threat. I'm not certain I did. Still, phys- politically, diplomatically, strategically, he couldn't afford to discount it. So they figure out that they can send him on a secret mission in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that is difficult for me to reconcile because I agree if he believes in this war, which Again, I think that's part of my issue is that I fundamentally disagree with them being there. Here's the thing with me, you guys. I don't fuck with the war. (laughs) But the fact that he is using special treatment to get on those front lines, the fact that he's like, we need to figure out a way to dip and dive around these
1: threats, fucking understand what is bigger than you getting what you want. Okay. I actually feel quite divided on this specifically because I do think – there is literally no way to win this game for him because what he wants, and I think what we all want, is to be like, well, if you're in the army, you need to be treated like a normal person. A normal person who goes to boot camp and signs up for the army is sent to war, right? Right. The problem is he cannot be sent to war because he is not a normal person. So now he's getting special treatment. In order for him to go to war like a normal person, he has to get special treatment. So I do kind of think that like there's a lot of things in this book I have problems with. I agree with you in that ideologically... I do not agree, and we'll get into this, with the way he talks about the war, the way he does not question the war. The fact that because he is in a unique and rarefied position of privilege, he could do more with his platform than he could on the ground. And we were talking about this. He's one of the few people on Earth where actually him going to a food bank is less helpful than Than him him tweeting about a food bank or even him calling his dad and complaining about the food bank. He is one of the few people on the planet who his platform is bigger than his hands. That being said... He should not have that platform because he is not smart and he didn't earn it. He's not capable of those thinking. So I do feel like it's so here there's two levels to this. There's like the overall level of I do not agree with the way that he supports this war in general. I do not agree with the lack of criticism he has. I don't agree with the fact that he is not that smart and he does not analyze things and he is not using his power to make things systematically better. I do think within his line of thought, the fact that he's taking kind of like the hook, line and sinker society's thing about. No matter what, we support the troops. We go to the army. Defending your country is the most noble thing a th- person can do, which is something that we, we are all fed. In that sense, I don't have a problem with the fact that he is trying to put himself as much in it as he can. He is not taking the easy, safe way out. He did try to go and do what any other person who grew up watching 9-11 happen and was like, I got to get out there and defend my country. He did what that guy from like New Jersey would have done. Right. But my problem is I'm like... I don't know, man. You're not some guy from New Jersey. Do you really think he keeps being like, I have to do my best to defend the British men and women who are out there losing limbs and losing lives. And And I'm like, like, how about don't send them there? Pull them out of the war then. How about that's the thing. That's what
0: I that's I agree completely. I think within his line of thought, I agree with his choice within that line of thought. I disagree with his entire line of thought.
1: Yes. I do think in this situation, taking away is war good or bad. If it was World War II and he was flying into Berlin, okay? Or if he was flying into Germany, (laughs) wearing not a Nazi uniform, (laughs) wearing the other (laughs) 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 uniform. Okay. What's another war where there was an... Like, what's the... The problem right now is, like, the ethics of the war in general. We're like, should anybody be there? But if we were to have a thought experiment where we're like, no, we have to go out and fight, it's still tricky where you're like, him going out there and putting his life at risk might put more people at risk, which is bad. But also, if he doesn't put his life at risk, it's like, OK, so you're not even putting your life at risk. Like, I don't know what he could have done in this situation. Right. That's not true of every situation. But I do think, like, the, yeah. it's hard because I think he's damned if he do, damned if he doesn't.
0: Yes. So he goes into war. He goes to Afghanistan. His job is to watch kill tv he just watches and scans for things and then hops on the radio to be like all right we've got a guy as we were saying
1: he gets a lot of special treatment so for him to figure out a way to get into the war they're like we'll hide you in afghanistan because iraq is too obvious and we'll basically put you in the control center so you're not out on the front lines but you're watching tv they have to find a secret place for him to train for this they actually train for him at the castle at his grandma's house and he goes out and he's there and he loves it. And because he's in the control center, he has like a nickname and he thinks nobody knows who he is. He's very happy. He says it's boring. You're just like watching targets for hours to see if somebody moves. But then when something does move, you have to be rapid fire to catch it. I confess I was happy. This was important work, patriotic work. I was using skills honed in the Dales and at Sandringham and all the way back to boyhood, even Balmoral. I was a British soldier on a battlefield at last, a role for which i had been preparing all my life.
0: At times I worried I was actually missing out on the real war. Was I perhaps sitting in the war's waiting room? The real war, I feel, was just down the valley. I was begging to go closer to the front. Oh. This is, again, something I have a really hard time with because, you know, not every soldier is in the exact front of the battlefield. Like, he's in the war. He's in Afghanistan. His, like, hunger to be
1: firing at someone it doesn't sit good with me. No, it doesn't sit right with me either. He... Tells a lot of stories. And I have to say, this part of the book, I was actually putting it down and taking me in breath a lot because it's all about murder. And I don't know. Obviously, I'm not pro-Taliban. Same. I
0: want not to be clear. I'm not pro-Taliban, but I do take issue with the black and white. Like, these are the insurgents. We are the good guys. He talks about the first time he is, like, directing a strike.
1: And he's mad because his friend tells him to use the smaller gun. So he only gets a couple of them. He
0: says, the Americans saw no need for a 2,000-pound bomb. We prefer to drop two 500-pound bombs. And a couple people got away. Not all of them got away. I consoled myself. Ten at least didn't make it out of that trench. Still, a bigger bomb really would have done the trick. Next time, I told myself, next time I'll trust my gut. These are still murdered humans. That he's
1: like, man, I should have dropped a 2,000-pound bomb. Next time, I'll trust my gut and bomb harder. It's just page after page of stories of what it's like to be out there. And if that's something that interests you, like for sure read it. He gets into the details. I don't think in this podcast, that's our forte. He really has a hero complex. He tells a story about when Americans bombed a random group of people. And so some civilians got screwed over. And so they went and found this guy's motorbike that he'd been blasted off of. And, and they like cleaned it up and gave it back to him. He was shocked that we'd retrieved his motorbike. He was more shocked that we'd clean it. And he nearly passed out when we gave it back. I'm like, brava, soldier.
0: Yeah, you were so much nicer than the Americans. You were still just like there
1: bombing the shit out of their country. So around February 2008, they get a letter that, The Taliban knows he's in Afghanistan. An Australian magazine had outed me, told the world I was in Afghanistan. The magazine was inconsequential, so no one noticed at first. And then some bell end in America picked up the story, posted it on his worthless website, and that got picked up by the crawlers. Now the news was everywhere. The worst kept secret in the Milky Way was that the presence of one Prince Harry in Helmand province.
0: So he has to get out of there. They take him back.
1: Now that the Taliban knew I was in the country and roughly where, they throw everything they had into killing me. The army didn't want me dying, but it was the same story one year earlier. The army was extra keen that others not die because of me. And I shared that sentiment. We talked a lot in this book about, like, when you should and shouldn't complain about the media. I do think for a magazine on Australia to compromise a military personnel, shut the fuck up. Yeah. That's not gossip. If an Australian
0: tabloid had resulted in British soldiers getting killed in search of Prince Harry, that's horrifying.
1: So he goes back home and on the plane home with the other... Soldiers that are returning to Britain, there's a back end where the injured soldiers are returning. And he goes, I felt angry at myself for having been so self-absorbed. I sent the rest of the flight thinking about the many young men and women going home in similar shape and all the ones not going home at all.
0: Good for you.
1: I thought about the people at home who didn't know the first thing about this war by choice. Many opposed it, but few knew a damn thing about it. I wondered why. Whose job was it to tell them? Oh, yes, I thought the press. It's like also you. Yeah, you could be part of the press. When I was reading this section, it was stressing me out because... Obviously I don't think war is a good thing, but I also will just say I'm not informed enough or smart enough to have like the answer to what to do about war. Same, but there is something about his lack of attempt to look into it, to think about the greater problems. He is sad that people don't do more for injured veterans. I think nobody would disagree. Nobody's like, Oh, you should come back from war and have to live on the street. But at the same time, he never questions why were they sent in the first place? And that's, what's hard to read. And I, unfortunately in reading this tome i did not have time to study all of the ins and outs of the last 20 years of the afghanistan war but i feel like he could have right (laughs) and he doesn't he doesn't
0: and i get that we're saying this as americans who are a part of a system that is fucked but i also want to say the fact that he is so confident walking into afghanistan saying we are the good guys those are the bad guys when he is a member of a direct bloodline of peak
1: colonizers. (laughs) It's very stressful. Especially when you juxtapose it later with his very personal and shallow criticisms of the racism of the press. He never really criticizes the inherent racism of the country, but he does criticize the racism of the press. Yes. And then for him to also be like, anyway, there I was blowing up as many people as I could find in Afghanistan. And you're like... Okay. Do you see this as at all part of the larger history of your country? He's so immediate in his perspective. It's so this is wrong. What they did to you is wrong. I, you know, I mean, if he saw you fall down on the street, I think he would come and help you pick up. If he saw
0: you fall down on the street, he would come pick you up. If he saw that there was a crooked
1: sidewalk that made people fall down every day he'd be like, what could we do about it? He'd be like, that's just the way it is, and all we can do is I can stand there and shake people's hands as they put Neosporin on it, yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what he is. He didn't even think to look at the sidewalk, and then when somebody says, hey, all that money going to the Royals could go to the sidewalk, he's like, no. But if the money didn't go to the Royals, how would I be here right now shaking Shaking your your hand? hand.
0: So he's having a hard time with Chelsea because of the baggage that comes along with him. She liked me, loves me, I guess, but she doesn't like the baggage that comes with me, doesn't like everything that comes with being royal and the press and so forth. And none of that is ever going away. So what hope is there? He wants really badly to be a husband and a father, but he's having a hard time finding a relationship with someone who's okay with that. And I think it's because he refuses to date inside of the
1: blue blood channels, which I respect and I understand. Well, I wouldn't even say that personally. At this point, he's what, 23, 24? Yeah. I think he can't find someone to marry because he is like a 24. He's like a hard partying person who's deployed constantly. Who likes other people who party. I will say around this time, Chelsea is freaking out about the way she's being stalked. Her family is being stalked and she doesn't know what to do. And one of his handlers and bodyguards, Marco, goes, go out to your car. I have an idea. And sure enough, there is a tracking device on the underside of her car.
0: So they break up because she's like, I don't want to live like this. And he's like, fair enough. He dates Caroline Flack. May she rest in peace very briefly. I think they have a flirtation and then the
1: press gets wind of it. And then they're like, never mind. Bye. And it immediately ends because it's just not worth it with the press hounding. I think he brings this up specifically because he sees her as another victim of the press.
0: So he meets with a general. He's just bopping around. He's really starting to lose his mind. He's quite directionless without being actively in the army. So he talks to a general. The
1: general is like, well, what if he became a pilot? That could be quite a bit safer. And he's like, great idea. So the thing about being a pilot is Iraq and Afghanistan, they don't have any air people. They actually have pretty good weapons on the ground. And they're very hard to beat because they're so good at camouflaging and stuff. But they don't have a single plane. So in theory, if Harry was always in the sky, they couldn't get at him. And in that sense, everyone else would be safe because he would be like a non-starter for Taliban targets. But the problem is... Being a pilot is hard. And they're like, it would take two years of schooling. And he's like, why would I go to two years of school? Let me do it. And they're like... No. And on top of it being hard, and this is something that's not even addressed, it's highly coveted. So for him to be like, if you do the work, we will hand you a very competitive position. He's like, the work?
0: (laughs) In conjunction with the rest of the chapter, none of this really sits right with me because now he's already been to the front lines. I get that he feels he has to go to do his duty But the fact that now he's like, what loopholes, what strings can we pull to get me back there? Because it's very important to me that I sit there and physically shoot at people.
1: So around this time, it's right at the turn of 2009. A video goes viral of him using a slur for a person from Pakistan. The video was a few years old. From his perspective, he was like, it was innocent enough. That was his nickname. I didn't know it was a slur. I'd heard people use that word all the time. I didn't know it wasn't. I thought that's just what you called someone from that country.
0: And this again is him just like really digging his heels into the I didn't know better. And it's like, I get that.
1: Everything is personal for him and he's never willing to reflect on the larger problems. Okay, so you didn't know that it was wrong. So you made a mistake that you wouldn't have made if you had had the information. And the problem was that everyone around you didn't have the information. Do you think that that's a problem? What are you changing about that? So then there is a break in
0: the scandal about who is getting all this information about them and it turns out their phones have been hacked by the press and there's been a lot of hacking and a lot of really illegal journalism there are people who have spread lies about him specifically that he's very excited to see go down
1: at this point in time as well he is living with will will is also training to be a search and rescue pilot and so they're living together training together and as close as they've ever been it's like the best time in their relationship however they go to give an interview about what it's like to live together And Will completely makes fun of Harry. And this way he's like, he snores, he's a slob. And Harry's like, no, I'm not. No, I don't.
0: This is a thing of him not being able to discern
1: any jokey ribby press versus hard libel. He looks back, he goes, I see now that he was very jealous, probably, because we had both been training for the same job. But obviously, the palace said, of course, Will can't go to war. He's going to be king. Harry could die. We don't really care. Yeah. He's the backup anyway. And he's like, I think Will was just jealous. I should have figured out how he might have been feeling. I knew all too well the despair of being pulled from a fight for which you've spent years preparing.
0: It's interesting because he pins it to very specifically. Will is jealous that Harry gets to go to war and not. Will is jealous that Harry has the freedom to do things he wants to do
1: as the older sibling not that I relate to Will in any way, but I do relate to that feeling of when somebody's like, well, it's just easier for you. And you're like, it's not easier for you. I'm just trying harder. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I didn't get in trouble wasn't because it came easier and everything was easier for me. It's because I like took great pains to not get in trouble. I was scared to get in trouble. I didn't follow the rules because that happened to be my instinct. I followed the rules because I was told there was rules and then I made sure I was following them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So then he's mad at Harry because Harry doesn't always follow the rules and it's still fine and Will is like, well, I was told that if I didn't follow the rules, horrible things would happen and it turns out that's not really true. Then he has to go learn how to fly this helicopter and he is really pissed because he has to do homework. I thought, could anything be crueler? Promise me a
1: helicopter and hand me a stack of homework. Man, shut up. If you're interested, a lot of info about what it's like to learn to fly an Apache. If you had told me an Apache is what, they flew in Avatar, the last airbender. I would have been like, yes. So. I have no idea what
0: an Apache is. So he's deep in flight training and he goes back to Africa to hang out with Tej and Mike for a bit. And they are all very impressed by the fact that he has become so much stronger and more mature. He just he loves to point out his little heroic moments. And I think that that is important for us to point out because it's important for him to point out. So he says here that he's talking to Teej and Mike and he's really starting to see all the problems in Africa including about poaching, and he says, I was the only person they knew who had any kind of influence, any kind of global megaphone, the only person who might actually be able to do something. What can I do, Mike? Shine a light. Yeah, do that. I don't know. I can't believe Mike had to tell you that. He also goes on a little trip with Willie And soon after we returned to Britain, the palace announced Willie was going to marry. News to me, all that time in Lesotho, he never mentioned it. That is very interesting.
1: He also wants to clarify that I never gave Willie that ring because it wasn't mine to give. He already had it. He'd asked for it after Mummy died. And I'd been more than happy to let it go. And he also says it was hard for him a little bit because I always assumed I'd be the first to be married because I wanted it so badly. I mean, you didn't want it that badly. It doesn't seem like you wanted it that badly. I mean, I think you wanted it, but you didn't want it. Okay, this is interesting men and women. I'm a,
0: ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. You ever notice men be like
1: <laughs> when women say I wanted something badly, it means they've prioritized it. Yes. Men, everything they want. They're like, but I wanted that. And you're like, but did you want it more than you wanted to go to war and be gone for months at a time? No. Did you want it more than you wanted to have like a not long distance relationship? No. Like, did you want it more than you wanted to get blackout drunk four nights a week? No. Okay. Well, then why did you think it was going to happen? <laughs> men are like, but but I said, Yeah. It's something that I think I would have liked, and I can't believe it's not happening. Yeah. Whereas women are like, I wanted to get married. You know what women do when they want to get married? They go on four dates a week. TikTok FYP is nothing but dating advice. They're reading books. They're listening to podcasts. They're setting the dinner for two to manifest a love. <laughs> they're not going to war and being like, where are all the good things? They're
0: putting clothes in only half of their closet.
1: <laughs> but when a woman wants something, she vision boards. She doesn't watch her brother get
0: married and go, oh, wait, no, me too, though. I want... He also, in December 2010, goes to Auschwitz for the first time, but he says he talked to some Holocaust survivors and says her stories were difficult to hear as they were vital, but I won't retell them. They're not mine to retell. Bitch, tell people. I don't think it's his place to, like, tell Holocaust survivors' stories, but I think it's very interesting that there are two paragraphs about – I mean, there are a lot of other issues. There's a lot of racism embedded in the royal family. In British culture, he has – I don't think done a great job dealing with racism head on as he married a mixed woman, but there have been two paragraphs about Judaism in this book, one where he's wearing a Nazi uniform and one where he's like, man, I found out the Holocaust was bad.
1: Yeah. I mean, here he goes. I'd long understood that the photo of me in a Nazi uniform had been the result of various failures, failure of thinking, failure of character, but it had also been a failure of education, not just school education, but self-education. I hadn't known enough about the Nazis, hadn't taught myself enough, hadn't asked enough questions of teachers and families and survivors I'd resolve to change that I couldn't become the person I'd hope to be until I changed that and I agree like okay and I think you think you're the person you want to be what have you changed what have you changed so then he gets the opportunity to go to the North Pole which is
0: cool he's really into this journey it happens to be like a couple weeks before Will and Kate's wedding so you know he's like I hope that we don't get delayed by weather because I've got a wedding to get to And he gets frostbite on his hands and his ears a little bit. frostnip, he calls it. And then he gets home and realizes it also got on his todger. He has to go to a doctor. And the doctor's like, just wait it out, man. And he's like, are you sure? And they're like,
1: This is another example of him not being a good brother to Will and then being so confused that Will doesn't care about him back. He's always like, I don't know why Will doesn't have my back. I'm like, when did you have his? Yeah. So in this situation, it's about to be Will's wedding. And this trip to the North Pole abuts very close to it. And every single person at the palace goes, I would not advise taking on this trip because there are so many hiccups that happen when you go to the North Pole. It's so unpredictable that the chances of you missing the wedding are pretty high. And he goes, I hear you, but I think I'm going to go anyway. And meanwhile, he's like, I know that Will was having a hard time. He told me several times he felt frustrated. Will was very removed from his own wedding. He wanted his beard at his wedding. The grandmother said no. He wasn't allowed to choose his outfit, the location. He wasn't allowed to choose anything about his wedding. And I think probably having your brother be like, and I might not make it, by the way, was probably hard for him to handle. He also reveals that he was not his best man, even though it was said that he was, that his two friends were the best man, and that was because they were worried that they could not trust him with the speech.
0: Also, it seems like they just weren't that close. He doesn't remember anything about the ceremony. He says he remembers Kate looking very beautiful, and then when they left, I recall thinking goodbye. Because like he
1: said before, once you get married within this family,
0: you become your own island.
1: And then he tries to wax poetic about all the identities you have in your life and how they like subsume one another. First, you're a prince, then you're a brother, then you're a husband, then you're a father. And I I will say, I don't think it hits as hard as he thinks he's going to. I think he could have cut it all together and been better off.
0: He dates around a little bit. It's very difficult for him to date because he, he starts dating this girl named Florence who goes by Flea. And just as soon as anyone gets wind their entire life is
1: ruined and flea calls him up and goes, listen, my mom told me I should just break up with you because the British press is going to ruin my life and it's just not worth it. And he's like, I understand you're right. At this time, he's still doing his two years of training. He does this whole chapter about when they psychologically torture you, where they kidnap you and strip you naked and, like, play annoying music and scream the meanest shit they can at you. And And they came in and said mean things about his mom. We felt you needed to be tested. I didn't answer, but that took it a bit far. Fair enough. I love that they're like, sorry, we went too far. I'm like, I will say, again, not probe Taliban. I don't think the Taliban would be like, We're going to torture you to death, but out of respect for your mother, we'll leave her out of this. We know her reputation has been tarnished enough. (laughs) The whole point is to have them go through what it would be like to be a prisoner of war. There is no such thing as too far. Sorry, your mom, we shouldn't have brought her up. But he goes, later I learned that two other soldiers in the exercise had gone mad. And this again is where I know that that's the truth of war. But surely you must think. The exercises that the military puts you into training, if they are ruining people's lives and driving them literally insane just in training. Do you have any questions about that? Maybe you question again if that is the potential outcome. If people are dying and being driven mad and being maimed, shouldn't we be a a bit careful about when we go to war and why? Should the traumatized boys they're targeting, should we think about them? He also starts talking about two specific paparazzi who begin to stalk him at this point. He calls them Tweedledum and Tweedledumber. Obviously, there was always paparazzi, but these stalked me beyond what anything anybody else was doing. And it was like their end game to get me to explode and then they could sue me forever. It was around this time that I began to think Murdoch was evil. Strike that, I began to know that he was firsthand. Once you've been chased by someone's henchmen through the streets of a busy modern city, you lose all doubt about where they stand on the great moral continuum. All my life, I'd heard jokes about the links between royal misbehavior and centuries of inbreeding, and it was then that I realized lack of genetic diversity was nothing compared to press gaslighting. Marrying your cousin is far less dicey than becoming a profit center for Murdoch, Inc. Of course, I didn't care for Murdoch's politics. We were just to the right of the Taliban's. I didn't like the harm he did each and every day to the truth, his wanton desecration of objective facts. Indeed, I couldn't think of a single human being in the 300,000-year history of the species who'd done more damage to our collective sense of reality. But what really sickened and frightened me in 2012 was Murdoch's ever-expanding circle of flunkies, young, broken, desperate men willing to do whatever was necessary to earn one of his grinchy smiles. And I will say this is a perfect example of he's like, listen, I always thought it was bad that he was eroding democracy. But when he started following me around at the clubs, (laughs) that's when I said he is the worst man that's ever existed. So then he meets Cressida. Cressida.
0: Cress. Cress. Cressy baby. So then he meets Cress. Bonus. Bonus. Jesus (laughs) they really like each other they hit it off he goes to Vegas and then he talks about this the famous Vegas incident you guys know he was photographed his touche was photographed in Vegas he went with a bunch of mates they decided to carpe the diem they play strip poker with a bunch of girls and someone snaps photos and sells them and he is just unable to live this down every time he comes to America everyone's like oh are you stopping in Vegas And this is one of the things that I think I do feel his privacy was violated in this incident. But I also think the fact that he still never developed a sense of, like, carefulness. He's like, why can't I just go to a club with my mates? Your life is different. You know that.
1: So then he has another story about being in combat He used the 30-millimeter cannon instead of the hellfire, and he didn't kill everybody. I'd killed people before, but this was my most direct contact with the enemy ever. Other engagements felt more impersonal. This one was eyes on target, finger on trigger, fire away. I asked myself how I felt. Traumatized? No. Sad? No. Surprised? No. Prepared in every way, doing my job, what we train for. I asked myself if I was callous, perhaps desensitized. I asked myself if non-reaction was connected to a long-standing ambivalence towards death. I didn't think so. It was just simple maths. These were bad people doing bad things to our guys, doing bad things to the world. If this guy I just removed from the battlefield hadn't already killed British soldiers, he soon would. Taking him meant saving British lives, sparing British families. Taking him meant fewer young men and women wrapped like mummies and shipped home to the hospital beds like the lads on my plane four years earlier or the wounded men or women I'd visit at Sully. This is something that really alarmed me,
0: talking about taking out a... Taliban member on a motorcycle could I honestly say that while chasing a pack of motorbikes not one particle of me was thinking about the pack of motorbikes that once chased one Mercedes into a Paris tunnel or a pack of motorbikes that had chased me a thousand times I couldn't say you cannot be at war being like I'm getting revenge on the
1: paparazzi that's so fucked and then he gets on to the people he's killed So my number, 25, it wasn't a number that gave me any satisfaction, but neither was it a number that made me feel ashamed. Naturally, I'd have preferred not to have that number on my military CV on my mind, but by the same token, I'd have preferred to live in a world in which there was no Taliban, a world without war. Even for an occasional practitioner of magical thinking like me, however, some realities just can't be changed. While in the heat and fog of combat, I didn't think of those 25 as people. You can't kill people if you think of them as people. You really can't harm people if you think of them as people. They were chess pieces removed from the board, bads taken away before they could kill goods. I'd been trained to otherize them, trained well. On some level, I recognized this learned attachment as problematic, but I also saw it as an unavoidable part of soldiering.
0: The way he thirsts for war is very stressful to me.
1: As my tour neared its end around Christmas 2012, I had questions and qualms about the war, but none of these was moral. I still believed in the mission, and the only shots I thought twice about were the ones I hadn't taken. I was honest with myself. I acknowledged plenty of regrets, but they were the healthy kind. I regretted the things I hadn't done. The Brits and Yanks I hadn't been able to help. I regretted the job not being finished. Most of all, I regretted that I had to leave. Here's the thing. As I said before, I do not feel that I am knowledgeable enough, that I am smart enough, that it is my place to say whether or not the war should have happened. I've never been to war. I think that that is more than anything like the situation of my circumstance. I think it has everything to do with being a woman, my class, like my background. I feel very grateful that I've never been put in a position where I was like, if I want to go to college, I have to go. I don't know how to handle geopolitics, global politics. I don't know. I don't know. So I don't want to sit here and say what the answer is because obviously I don't have the answer. I think what I can hold Harry accountable for is he is somebody who for no real reason, by birthright, was put in a position where even though I know he's not in the British Parliament or anything, he has a platform. When he says, I have some qualms about the war, these need to be discussed. We can't have 140 pages talking about all the near kills and the motorbikes and how sandy it was and like learning how to fly helicopters. If you're sitting here watching people die and be injured and lives be ruined and the trauma and the stress of it all, and you know firsthand how horrible it is, and you have the power to think larger about it you need to be thinking larger Larger, and not only does he not do anything in a larger scale but he's not even putting those ideas here and I think mm-hmm. it's hard to watch this man talk so uncritically about murder yes the fact that he can so confidently say bad guys versus good guys I guess there's so many people who I understand it's A circumstance and I'm very lucky to have not been in a circumstance where it was like kill or be killed. I've never once in my life been in a kill or be killed situation, but he chose to be there.
0: He pulled rank. He used his power to put himself there. And then from there, he has done nothing other than his 25 kills. So what the change he makes, he's like, man... Soldiers are not treated well when they get back from war and they deserve to feel joy again. So he creates the Invictus Games. He works with the Royal Foundation Board to fund a big Olympics for veterans. Willie is mad at him. He was sorely irritated. He'd wish I'd run it by him first. And he's like, oh, this is sibling rivalry. He's just jealous of me.
1: Part of the problem in their family is, again, all they care about is press and being perceived. And I guess like as they should. Their whole job is being perceived as vibes right like (laughs) they don't have any actual duties outside of showing up and making people like them they are the ultimate influencers and that's why i kind of can't stand so much of the discourse around them because they are no different than the influencers they're like government-funded influencers yeah And so it is their job to be liked. And so there's a finite amount of money. For some reason, there's only seven million pounds that they're allowed to work with to give to charity. It seems like they could garner more money if they just did a HelloFresh sponsorship once on their Instagram. They'd probably make more money than that and they can give out more money. If they just leaned into being influencers, they could help more probably. And so Will feels mad that some of the money is being given to Harry because he's like, the more that is given to you, the less that's given to me. Will had just been shut down by Pa because Pa's like, well, if you do a charity thing, then people aren't going to like me. It might take press away from my charity thing. So again, it all comes down to the zero-sum game of any good thing you do either overshadows my good thing or makes me look worse in comparison. Yeah. And it's the name of the game is get the most positive press for yourself. And Will... Because he listens and because he follows the rules, when his dad says, no, you can't do that charity, he does it. When Harry is told, no, you can't do that charity, he fights back. And then Will is like, what the fuck?
0: Although planning the Invictus Games is very rewarding for him, he is in a state of depression again. He's just like staying inside and watching friends. He decided he's Chandler. But he realizes... It never occurred to me that I, too, was suffering from post-traumatic stress. Despite all my work with wounded soldiers, all my efforts on their behalf, my struggles to create a game that would spotlight their condition, it never dawned on me that I was a wounded soldier. Which I think is fair. He saw a lot. He experienced a lot. It is reasonable to be like,
1: was my mental health affected by this? Probably. Of course you're going to be stressed. And so he starts having panic attacks. He is really having bad anxiety. I was a wounded soldier.
0: And my war didn't begin in Afghanistan. It began in August 1997. So this takes a really sympathetic moment for me and kind of fucks it up because I I don't think that that's like fair to say. I think it's okay to be like, I have mental health issues I haven't addressed from beginning in 1997. It's a little bit stressful for me that he conflates those two traumas so much mm-hmm. because he's supposed to be shining a spotlight on the mental health of soldiers returned from war and instead he's like i've been basically
1: returned from war since i was 12 so he gets back he's having all these uh, panic attacks and he's still working with the army but he's working obviously a desk job and doing more meet and greets and he hates it he's living a very depressed life then george is born he's very happy to be an uncle he talks
0: again about like really dreaming of a day that he can bring a girl home and
1: As a confirmed bachelor, I was an outsider, a non-person within my own family. If I wanted that to change, I had to get hitched. That simple. Me and Ashley were laughing about this because I feel like he thinks that's a specifically royal experience, but it is like the common trope that if you go home as an adult for the holidays or Thanksgiving or Christmas... And you don't have a partner. You're just like sleeping on the floor in the kitchen. He's like, no one could possibly relate to this. I'm like, actually,
0: you would not believe that this is the most common thing about you.
1: He goes home for Christmas one year. And somehow, even though they have 50 bedrooms in the palace, they're all packed. And he has to sleep in the servants' quarters. He also discusses the court circular, which I think is a perfect example of the competitiveness in the family, the court circular adds up all of your public speaking engagements and essentially is your performance review for the year. Because as a full-time Royal, your job is to do speaking and service engagements. And so then it says who does the most and who does the least and it's there for everybody to see and judge who was the laziest, who worked the hardest. And he goes, essentially, it's a joke. It was all self-reported, all subjective. Nine private visits with veterans helping with their mental health. Zero points. Flying via helicopter to cut a ribbon on a horse form. Winner. So I guess it's your job to say how much you did. So if there's any part of you that wanted to do things quietly without credit, then you don't get credit. And then people are judging you and saying you didn't do enough. And it gets very competitive in the family because, of course, if you have the least amount of engagements... You're going to get slaughtered in the press. and But they're competing against each other. Yeah. And he's like, nobody talks about it in the room, but we're all like looking at it over Christmas being like, okay, who is the loser and who am I specifically trying to beat?
0: Will and Kate used to live in a cottage called Not Caught, I think at Kensington Palace, and then they move across the street because they need more space. So then Harry moves in, and he thinks because he's neighbors with Will and Kate, they'll
1: all hang out all the time. And they never do. They never do. In this time... He's dating Christina. They're outed. She helps him cry for the first time about his mother. And even though they do have this like emotional connection and everybody loves her, I think she's the favorite girlfriend of his for the whole family. They recognize that they don't want the same thing. She doesn't actually want to be a royal. She's like, this life is not for me. So they have to break up, unfortunately. It's tough stuff, but they do it.
0: He turns 30. He's still working on the Invictus Games. He does not like that now he is just in the army but not at war. He doesn't like the work part of it. He's never liked the work part of anything. He decides to leave the army and become a full-time royal
1: for work. Kate was pregnant again, and I think this begins, like, the rise of Kate and William as the favorite couple. And... William was beholden to Pa, who controlled the purse strings. He did as much as Pa wanted him to do, and sometimes that wasn't much because Pa and Camilla didn't want Willie and Kate getting loads of publicity. Pa and Camilla didn't like Willie and Kate drawing attention away from them or their causes. They'd openly scolded Willie about it many times.
0: That's very interesting. This is a part of it that I, like, really never understood.
1: Willie told me that both he and Kate felt trapped and unfairly persecuted by the press and by Pa and Camilla, so I felt some need to carry the banner for all three of us in 2015. But selfishly, I also didn't want the press going for me. To be called lazy, I shuddered. I never wanted to see that word attached my name the press had called me stupid for most of my life and naughty and racist but if they dared call me lazy i couldn't guarantee i wouldn't go down to fleet street and start pulling people out from behind their desks
0: you can call me a racist every day of my life but don't you
1: dare (laughs) he also says i didn't understand until months later that there were even more reasons why the press was gunning for willie first he'd gotten them all worked up by ceasing to play their game denying them unfettered access to his family he would refused several times to trot kate out like a prized racehorse and that was considered a bridge too far then he'd had the temerity to go out and give a vaguely anti-Brexit speech, which really galled them. Brexit was their bread and butter. How dare he suggest it was bullshit? So I guess at this point, I think everyone in the family had at one point in time said, I can't handle this anymore. I'm going to fight back and immediately been beaten down. And that's why when Harry was like, no, I'm leaving, they were like, how dare you? It was very Misery Loves Company. It's very... As we were saying, the human condition that allows hazing to continue for generations and generations. When you have been broken by something, it's not fair that somebody else shouldn't be broken too.
0: Yeah. Full time royal means doing almost nothing. He's just like in his cottage chilling. He says he goes grocery shopping in disguise. And that's literally the only time he ever leaves the house. People are calling him Bridget Jones. They're like, when is that bitch going to get married? And he's like, who would marry me? My life is sad and I don't meet any new people. Then he decides to go work with Tej and Mike on, like I said earlier, the poaching problem in Africa. And Will is mad at him because Will's like, Poaching is my issue. You can't steal my thing. And he's like, I just I have to go do this.
1: I complained to Tej and Mike that I'd finally see my path, that I'd finally hit upon the thing that could fill the hole in my heart left by soldiering. In fact, a thing more sustainable and Willie was standing in the way. They were aghast. Keep fighting, he said, there's room for both of you in Africa. There's need for you both. That's the thing is the whole thing is so fucking preposterous. Watching him make it a personal problem with his brother, like I could have saved the elephants. But but Will said I wasn't allowed. And then, of course, there's the other larger layer of this idea that these two brothers are competing for the right to save the elephants that their family have put in danger by like completely stripping an entire continent of so many of its resources and fucking up the entire like its most recent history through colonialism. It's crazy to be like fighting over who gets to be the good guy in a situation where you have caused unknowable pain and suffering to people.
0: So then he goes to L.A. just, like, on a trip. A lot of it is just him, like, getting away. He's like, I just got to go hang out with my friends. He goes to L.A. with his friend who I think is dating an actress because his friend's girlfriend is, like, friends with Courtney Cox.
1: Courtney Cox isn't supposed to be home she's supposed to be gone so like let's party at Courtney's. Yeah so he does mushrooms
0: at Courtney Cox's house and that's like important to him because he loves friends. He does an entire
1: story about doing mushrooms at her house and the trip he went on where he thought a trash can was talking to him and I was like wow you really are the most regular man in the world. He's just like a frat bro. (laughs) He's in California he's just being a little rich turd he's drinking his party and he's doing drugs at courtney cox he's very la he like has this mystical moment where he's like the moon told me something big was about to happen
0: and that's when he sees an instagram post from his friend violet with violet's friend who's the most beautiful girl he's ever seen
1: this woman stopped the conveyor belt this woman smashed the conveyor belt to bits i have never seen anyone so beautiful
0: so he dms violet and is like give me her number and violet is like sure
1: They start DMing and then they start texting. It's July 1st, 2016. They're texting all freaking night. They FaceTime.
0: She happens to be in England at the time for Wimbledon where she is watching her friend Serena Williams compete from Serena Williams' friends and family box.
1: And I'm like, how? I did not know she knew Serena Williams. He's like, cool, can we go on a date? And she says, sure. He goes, what about my place? She goes, your place on a first date? I don't think so. No, I didn't mean it like this. She didn't realize that being royal meant being radioactive, that I was unable to meet at a coffee shop or pub. Reluctant to give her a full explanation, I tried to explain obliquely about the risk of being seen. I didn't do a good job. So she suggested Soho House. She would get them a reservation under her name, Megan Markle. He shows up 30 minutes late because there's traffic. He's like, sorry, we're caught in traffic. I'm trying to get there. And she goes, well, just like get out of the car and walk over. And he's like, I can't. But she doesn't understand it yet. Before we get into this, should be trigger warned Megan Markle.
0: Yeah, trigger warning, we're going to be talking about Meghan Markle.
1: Trigger warning, we like Meghan Markle. I'm just going to give a quick little rant up top because I need to, like, say some things. Okay. As Ashley said, we're going to talk about Meghan Markle. If you love her beyond anything, great. If you find her annoying beyond anything, good for you. If you hate her, turn off this podcast. If you despise her... From the
0: core of your being in a way that you cannot listen to us discuss her without wanting to send us a furious and multi-sentenced DM. You can't continue.
1: The reason we have not talked about Meghan Markle ever on this podcast is because I feel that the psychos have ruined it for the bitches. You cannot snark about her without really horrible people saying
0: really horrible things.
1: The idea that you should want her murdered, unfortunately, is so psychotic that I can't even sit here and be like, why didn't she know Prince Harry was famous? Yes. In this podcast, we are going to proceed and say our piece. But again, as Ashley said... If your exact ideology about Meghan Markle is not reflected exactly back to you, I don't care. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Here's the thing is she is an influencer. They are influencers. The Royals are influencers. And especially now that they're no longer royal, they are influencers. Their job is to be liked. I was watching this TikTok by this woman, Culture Works, who I really like. And I recommend if she has really good pop culture commentary, I think. And she's basically saying like, they are influencers. They're in the business of being liked. You can fall for it or not. Their job is to be talked about. And I do think that there it's fun to snark. If you think she has the greatest style in the world and you want to worship her, that's your business. If you want to like make fun of her because she seems a little bit cringy a la Gwyneth Paltrow, great. That's your business. If you are up at night, unable to sleep because you hate this woman with such a passion, that is your fault. Just don't follow her on Instagram. If you think the core of the problem
0: with the royal family is in Meghan Markle's lap, you're wrong. And if you
1: think... That she is anything more than... Just a beautiful girl with the tiniest calves in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Truly the smallest little calves I've ever seen, which to me makes her unrelatable. But like, I don't know. So we are going to go through. We're going to be snarky like we'd be snarky about any celebrity. If you think this is your chance to join in and be like, yeah, I wish I could put a gun to Meghan Markle's head, you do not not have a friend in me.
0: You do not have a friend in me. And I also wish you would stop listening to this podcast (laughs) because I think we think about things in very different ways.
1: Also, if you come to me and you're like, she is a perfect goddess on earth and she is what's gonna get this country out of racism we don't worship anybody man yeah if you think she is going to fix the problems of this country with her blog and her granola get, I will laugh at you but but I don't hate
0: you I have no passionate feelings. Feel listening. I just don't
1: fully agree first things first they meet up and what's very clear is that she is not playing the game of him being famous and I think from what I've gotten from this account of her personality I feel this. I feel that Shia is somebody with like a lot of self-esteem and boundaries. This book takes place in a world where Suits is the most popular TV <laughs> show that ever existed. <laughs> that is not my reality. I never watched Suits, which is shocking, because I've
0: watched every Suits-adjacent show that's ever existed. I've seen Burn Notice five times through. I watched Royal Pains, for Christ's sake.
1: One of the things that you have to buy into in order to believe this book is that almost everywhere Meghan Markle goes, people are just bowing down recognizing her from suits so one of the weird things about megan markle is that she doesn't know how famous harry is and how big of a deal the royal family is even though she's going to london all the time i am to suits what Meghan markle was to the royal family <laughs> we were both people who somehow were the only people on earth who didn't know that it was a big deal yeah which is fair one of her things is she's like we'll just get out and walk and he's like i can't and she's like why this is very clearly a through line megan markle said it in the press it comes up in here she did not know what she was getting into I believe and I disbelieve her. I think she chose not to Google him out of like a self-righteous pride.
0: I agree. I think it was not out of being so aloof and not even giving a shit what his title meant. But I think that in that pride, she kind of soaked in what you learn about the royal family from simply existing in a world where there is a royal family, which I always thought it was more of a figurehead system. I think that she was shocked at how protocol heavy it is to this day.
1: I also think she had a personality that came from LA where things are much more upwardly mobile, where she decided in order to be very, very successful, she was going to have to like act like an A-lister, even though she was a D-lister. And that means not being impressed or awed by anything and clearly it worked into getting her friends with serena williams but i think she had a real like if if i sit down with kim kardashian i'm not gonna fawn but i think in terms of the royal when like the government is involved it's one thing to sit down and be like i'm not gonna be like oh wow kim kardashian but if you met the obamas you would have to be like oh okay they're gonna probably put me through a metal detector yeah some things have protocols
0: so she didn't really understand the protocol and that it was different and she had that real not fawning thing that we know Prince Harry
1: loves. So basically, they meet up at Soho House. They had been talking nonstop. She obviously looks beautiful. He is obsessed with how beautiful she is. And so, like, here's one of the things that I wish people didn't despise Meghan Markle, so that I could dislike Meghan Markle. They sit down and she talks about all the things she's doing, her businesses, her friends. She has several careers. She's an actor. She's a lifestyle writer. She's a travel writer. She's a corporate spokesman, entrepreneur, activist, model. She lived all over the world, lived in various countries, worked for the U.S. Embassy in Argentina. Her CV was dizzying. All part of the plan, she said. Plan? Help people? Do some good? Be free? I mean, that is a goofy thing to say. That's silly. To sit down on a first date and be like, the master plan? Help people, do good, be free. I mean, if somebody said that to me at a dinner party, I would go home and like laugh about it.
0: (laughs) I would text you about it for sure. I would send you a voice note on my way out of there and be like, this girl said a really funny thing. Then he's like, when can I see you all summer? And she's like, I can't. I'm so busy this summer. She's going to do an Eat, Pray, Love. And he's like, oh, what? She's like, eat, pray, love the book. And he goes, sorry, not big on books. I felt intimidated. She was the opposite of me. She read, she was cultured.
1: She, (laughs) Uh, I have to say this really speaks to the larger problem of how uneducated he is and the fact that he has so much power and there's so much weight put on what he says and does. Cause this isn't even a thing that you have to have read a book. This is
0: not like a Faulkner reference. This is just, did you watch TV this week?
1: At some point, you should have been like, Eat, Pray, Love. Was that like a very smart person book? And anybody would have been like, no, (laughs) not really. They are matching up calendars. It turns out she has one week that she had purposefully left free because her friend said you need to leave time for spontaneity and wonderful things that aren't planned. And he goes, wait, I have one free week. And they go, could it be? Is it possible? It was the same week. How crazy would that be? It was the same week. This is one of those stories that two people in love think is the most charming story in the world and everybody else is just like, okay. It's like you are
0: two people with like semi-flexible schedules who happened to make one week match up. I mean, you're saying you're so busy. Harry's obsessed with how busy he is, but it's like you were just in LA like doing mushrooms for a week. You were just,
1: you can free shit up if you want. So then for their next date, that one week, they meet up in Botswana. They are with Teej and Mike and they get to spend this week together and he's so amazed that she's not a diva and she's so down to earth and she razzle dazzles everybody with her stories and he's always like everybody go everyone had so many questions about suits and I'm like did they? These are documentary filmmakers I don't know if you've said that but they had just worked on like Dave Attenborough's BBC documentary about animals and I'm just like they were really interested in the inner workings of suits but that is that's his truth
0: (laughs) Then he goes on a boys, a lads trip. He loses his phone. He like drops it off of a jet ski. And that's the other thing is this so busy summer. He's like, how am I going to make it work? I've got all these lads trips. (laughs) (laughs) And so he's jet skiing with the boys. His phone gets wet. He loses her number. But then Mike is going home to Tiege. And Tiege has Megan's number because they just spent the week together. And he's like, okay, I'll write you a letter. And Tiege can text it to Megan. And he writes, hey, beautiful. Okay, you got me. Can't stop thinking about you. Missing you lots. Phone went in a river. Sad face. Apart from that, having an amazing time. Wish you were here. And he talks about like sitting down and like racking his brain to write this letter. And I'm like, that's the
1: letter? It's so endearing, but he is such a like bro. So then, of course, they meet up again. And they decide to cook dinner for friends He tells the story about sneaking into the grocery store and they were shopping parallel so nobody would recognize them. And 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 someone recognized her from Suits. On the trip over to Botswana, she's like, it turns out everybody on the flight to Botswana, huge Suits fan. And I was
0: like, how could that be true?
1: (laughs) Is Suits huge in Botswana? I guess. I don't know. And then
0: the other question I have is he's always talking about getting in disguise to go grocery shopping. And how he travels with three armed guards at all times are people just maybe respectful of you grocery shopping or are you really stealth grocery shopping in a pack of four now with <laughs> Megan. <laughs> I
1: don't also, know. And they I were also like walkie to each other. If I went to a Whole Foods and I saw one redheaded dude with three giant arm bodyguards and then a girl in a hat being like, the parchment paper's behind you, I would just be like, okay, something's going on here, but I just don't care. <laughs> It'd be very one of those things where I'd almost be like, they want attention so bad that I won't give it to them out of spite.
0: <laughs> I also, I guess, wonder in this like, world
1: where it seems he has quite the staff no one could grocery shop for him well he does mention that sometimes Pa's chef left frozen meals in his freezer for him okay so they have a dinner date with eugenie and jack and they have so much fun the salmon turned out perfectly and everyone complimented meg on her culinary talents they also devoured her stories they wanted to hear all about suits <laughs> So then that night, she gets food poisoning and pukes. And she's like, oh, no, I didn't want to puke on our fourth date. And I was like, fourth date? Y'all went to Botswana for a week. We're beyond date counting. We're beyond date counting. But he goes, stop, I said. Taking care of each other? That's the point. That's love, I thought, though I managed to keep the words inside.
0: So they decide they're genuinely going to make this... They decide they're going to give this a go. And in order to do that, they cannot be apart for more than two weeks. And because when he travels, governments have to be notified, it's very difficult for him to stealth cross international borders. So that means she's going to be traveling every two weeks from Canada to England.
1: So he goes to dinner with Kate and Will one day. And they're like, what's going on? Any girls? And he finally is like, yeah... She's an actress, oh, she's American, oh, on a show called Suits. Their mouths fell open. They turned to each other. Then (sighs) Willie turned to me and said, fuck off. What? No way. Sorry. Impossible. I was baffled until Willie and Kate explained that they were regular, nay, religious viewers of Suits. Okay. What? What (laughs) rabbit hole did I fall? USA is a huge channel over there? I guess. In England? I guess. Finally, he says... How much she likes her and that they can't wait for to be a four-son like he always dreamed. And Will says it might not happen, Harold, and you've got to be okay with that. She's an American actress after all, Harold. Anything might happen.
0: He always talks about how they say American actress with an inflection like garbage trash person.
1: It's October 2016. Megan is back on one of, one of her visits to see him. It's still quiet that they're together. They go to visit Fergie, his aunt. And who should happen to be stopping by on her way home from church? The Queen rapid fire in the driveway
0: they have to be like Megan you're about
1: to meet the queen here's what you do and she's like yeah but can I just like hug your grandma and he's like fuck no she's like yeah but she's your grandma no And he goes no she's the queen I will say as an American I also would have been like oh I didn't know that I had to follow royal protocol to meet your member of family
0: I I wouldn't have assumed especially in an informal setting like a living room if I'm walking up to her to say hello at Wimbledon I understand that like for the press, there's a protocol, but I like get her line of thinking that she was like, yeah, I don't know. We're in your aunt's living room. Why would I also sorry?
1: Not my queen. I didn't vote for her. (laughs) Not my queen. Not my problem. So Eugenie comes down. they like give her all the rundown on how to behave. And she goes and Harry says she nails it, that everyone gets along. She's quiet and notices how everybody is different. Like even though they had just gone out to dinner with Eugenie a few weeks earlier and they were all really good friends and got along well, nobody spoke. In front of the queen. She's your grandma, but she's first and foremost the queen. And you don't act normal in front of her. Right. Then everyone
0: likes her. Finally, he takes her over to meet Will and Kate. Things were a little stilted and he wasn't sure
1: why. I introduced Meg, who leaned in and gave him a hug, which completely freaked him out. He recoiled.
0: Maybe he expected her to curtsy. You know, I think that Harry always had a really hard time knowing what level of formality existed between him and his brother. Because Harry was, on Megan's side, a very like, you're my family. We are part of a nuclear family. You're my brother. Why are we acting like this is formal? And I think Will was really raised to believe now that we're adults, we exist as part of this system where I'm your superior.
1: And not only that, but he even says that his own grandmother stopped hugging his father when his father turned five, that when his father was five, she went on a long business trip for the summer. When she came back, she gave him a handshake and they never hugged again. So I do think in general, outside of like family informality, to have a stranger hug you when you've never hugged your own dad. Yeah. He should have propped her and been like, hey, we're not that touchy here. It is a cultural difference. And I also do think she should have picked up on the vibe.
0: Can I say where I think that this might be Harry's fault. In his mind, the family he wishes for is a touchy-feely yes. family. He wants a family that hugs. He wants to exist in this like cozy, everybody's patting each other on the back and saying, good job, I'm so proud of you. So in the version of the family that exists in his head, Megan could have hugged. He was like,
1: great, I love that she did that. But that was the wrong thing to do. They exchange a few words. He says that Will didn't even invite them in. Kate was out with the kids. And they're like, cool, we'll come over later. And they never did. A few weeks later, then Meg meets... His dad and Camilla, this is where he says that line, Camilla turned my bedroom into a dressing room. I tried not to care, but especially the first time I saw it, I did care. He preps her better. He goes, wear a dress, wear your hair down, do minimal makeup and curtsy. You're going to have to act like this is the future king. And so she goes and it seems like she nails it. They all sit and eat and she again tells them about suits. They all bond over dogs and music. Halloween weekend of 2016, news breaks that he's dating Megan. It seems like it's not so bad because they don't have an official photo of it, but it had been leaked they had been warned that it was about to come out. They didn't do anything to stop it. They couldn't really. It sucked, but it blew over because there wasn't a ton of proof. And he basically is like, are you ready for this? Once this out, is
0: out. Said, we're going to be hunted. No two ways about it. I'll treat it just as if we're in the bush. She reminded me of what I'd said in Botswana when the lions were roaring. Trust me, I'll keep you safe. She believed me then. She believed me now. And this is something that I think it was just irresponsible of him to have not prepared harder for.
1: In those first few hours and days of November 2016, there was a new low every few minutes. I was shocked and scolded myself for being shocked and for being unprepared. I'd been braced for the usual madness, the standard libels, but I hadn't anticipated this level of unrestrained lying. Above all, I hadn't been ready for the racism, both the dog whistle racism and the glaring vulgar in-your-face racism. They come at her for being black in the most like racist way. Harry's girl is almost straight out of Compton, gang-scarred home of Mother Revealed, Harry to marry into gangster royalty. I mean, they are like hunting Daria... Megan's mom and they are just like writing really awful things about Megan and trying to go through her past and make her seem awful.
0: They're trying to make her seem awful. They're trying to humiliate her and they're saying just horrible, horrible racist things. And to me, watching Harry just sit there and say, like, I could not possibly have been prepared for it. There were moments in your life when you were called to educate yourself a little bit better. You can't sit here now in your 30s and say, like, but no one ever taught me. It just is hard to read, especially Listen, I understand that in that moment, he couldn't have seen it coming. But looking back, writing this book, the fact that he can't sit there and say, like, it was a shortcoming on my part. I was in a world where I could say slurs that anyone thinking twice about it, where I could wear a Nazi uniform without anyone thinking twice about it until the press called it out. This was his community. And so for him to now looking back, be
1: like, oh, I was woefully unprepared to introduce her into this world. I don't feel like he does that. Well, I guess I think the larger thing would have been he never takes it a step further and says out loud what it means about their society in general. Yes. It's always, I can't believe they're being racist to Meghan. I can't believe the press is being racist to Meghan. He is very patriotic. He loves Britain. And I think he hates that he can't be seen as the face of Britain anymore. But he never wants to go as far as to say, my class, my family, my country is racist. Yes. And so that's the problem is he won't ever speak to the foundational systemic truth He can only keep it to his immediate experience.
0: I filled with rage and guilt. I'd infected Meg and her mother with my contagion, otherwise known as my life. I'd promised her I'd keep her safe, and I'd already dropped her into the middle of this danger. I mean, yeah, you
1: dropped the ball. He keeps going to the palace and saying, you have to do something. You have to do something. You have to do something. They're like, no, we don't do things. We don't complain. We don't explain. You have to let it go. We can't sue them on everything. He's begging them to sue them. The lawyer's like, I can't. And then a HuffPo article comes out. It's basically like the mild reaction of Britons to this explosion of racism was to be expected since they were the heirs of the racist colonialists. But what was truly unforgivable was Harry's silence. So he freaks out. He runs to the PR person. He's like, I have to say something and I'm going to post it. Meanwhile, Meghan is still working in Toronto, filming on suits and being chased by paparazzi, like chased down the street, harassed. They have to keep shutting down the set of suits because people are breaking in and
0: calling in threats.
1: So he puts out the statement and his family is furious. Pa and Willie were furious. They gave me an earful. My statement made them look bad. They both said, why? Because they never put out a statement for their girlfriends or wives when they were being harassed. Megan, of course, is like experiencing for the first time and is horrified. And she's like, why are they allowed to just say this? She is being hunted. The press is now going to where she lives, going to her neighbors. They paid neighbors to set up cameras that point right into her backyard and into her house. They were ringing the doorbell every 30 minutes. She went to the police, and the police were like, we can't do anything about it because you're a public figure. They're running her off the road, icy Canadian roads. She's scared, she's stressed, and nothing can be done. They're also hounding her mom, Daria, in L.A., taking photos of her going to work, taking photos of her walking around to the laundromat. And she works in palliative care. They're also stalking and hunting her friends.
0: Her father, who then ends up working with the paparazzi and, like, selling photos of his self every woman and we I don't think we talked about his breakup with Cress, but it was because she didn't like the scrutiny and everyone that he's ever dated it just the scrutiny is too much to handle and I completely that it's awful like the things that the women that he's dated it sounds like have been put through are horrendous so whenever people say that Megan is power hungry or attention hungry or like just obsessed with rising through the ranks of life I think that that's like a really unfair thing to say about someone who was simply decided to handle public scrutiny
1: to see the fact that every single person who ever dated Harry broke up with him because they couldn't handle the press and I guess that's his story it's his take on that's it. his take and it also does help to be like see how awful you guys are to me like Megan's a state for putting up with it. but I do think no normal person would want to put up with that listening to me, I go I'm not jealous that this is not my life I wouldn't want to be a prince this is not a good exchange of goods so then one night tensions are high they're
0: eating dinner together and he snaps at Megan and she is like you have to go to therapy or this cannot continue. That was the breaking point for her was that you can't talk
1: to people that way. And then he begins a therapy journey, which good for him. The stories keep running. It's getting worse and worse. And I think here is part of the problem of he, as we said, equates all negative press is the same. And there is a fucking difference between stalking her mother and saying horrible racist things about her and then being like, And she wore a green dress. She didn't have worn green. Yeah, at one point they get mad at her because she's not wearing a hat, even though she has been specifically told not to wear a hat. And I'm like, those are the ones that you had to let go. He's like, sue them. Tell them that you told her not to wear a hat. Release a statement about the hat. And I am like, you do not know how to pick your battles. I do think that there is a line that should not be crossed with people. If you are a public figure, if you are literally a princess, we get to say your hat sucks. I do think the fact that he was running to the palace every single minute being like, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. You cannot spend your life trying to undo every press story. It's just not possible. You have to get out of the spotlight then, which arguably he did or didn't do. But my point is, his dad is always like, just don't read it, just don't read it, which I also think is psycho. You can't just not read it, it is their life. But I do think the way that he didn't know how to pick and choose his battles... He also keeps trying to explain to his family that, and he never says it explicitly, but he keeps trying to explain to his family, I appeal to his self-interest. Doing nothing is a terrible look for the monarchy. People out there have such strong feelings about what's happening to her, Pa. They take it personally. You need to understand that. Something odd about this book is that he never once says how important it was for some people to see a black woman in the royal family. And he always is like, you don't understand. People relate to her differently than they relate to us for those people. I'm like, say what you want to fucking say. Yeah. Britain is very often
0: accused of being like a deeply racist place. So think about your own self-interest and what it looks like
1: for you (laughs) to allow all of this racism to be happening to the one person of color in this family. I don't know why he won't just explicitly say that. But again, I think it's like his inability to condemn the systems as a whole and only look at the things that are happening to them personally.
0: Why do I have to beg you, Pa? Why is this not already a priority for you? Why is this not causing you anguish, keeping you up at night that the press are treating Meg like this? You adore her. You told me yourself.
1: Whenever I complained about it, privately or publicly, people just rolled their eyes. They said I was whinging, that I pretended to want privacy, said that Meg was pretending as well. Oh, she's getting chased. Is she? Wham, wham. Give us a break. She'll be fine. She's an actress. She's used to paps, in fact, wants them.
0: I think that this whole thing of all press is evil. Your family exists because you are press trinkets. But can you draw a line? Can you say... This is off limits. And it feels like that is what Charles and Will have done for the most part. They're not always successful, but they do this trade off where they say you can talk about this if you skip talking about this. Harry is unwilling to create that compromise in any way. And maybe no one even told him that that's what he was supposed to do. But that's what is destroying him is he's like, how could they talk about me? And it's like, of course, they're going to talk about you. You need to sit down and like figure out how to make them stop being so racist.
1: He talks about someone who said that the current royal family is basically like pandas. They're just people that we all look at. And he goes, we did live in a zoo, but by the same token, I knew as a soldier that turning people into animals into non-people is the first step in mistreating them and destroying them. If even a celebrated intellectual could dismiss us as animals, what hope for the man or woman on the street? Did you not call people chess pieces and say it made sense that you murdered them? Yeah, it's really hard for me to find compassion for you and be like, can you believe someone dehumanized me when 50 pages ago you were like, to me... I was doing what I had to do, taking out the bads. So something odd that happens is in the fall of 2017, him and Meg, in order to make it work, like they're like, we can't keep doing long distance. We're either all in or all out. And so she agrees to quit suits and move to London and live with him. When she moves in, so this is almost a year and a half after they've been dating. she's now given up her whole life to live with him. They're in the kitchen and he says, I love you. And she says, I love you back. And he's so happy. And I'm like, that is a belated amount of time to say I love you.
0: Did you not love each other already?
1: You guys went to Botswana for a week. You guys had a very expedited relationship. I can't believe you moved in and quit your job before an I love you. Yeah. And so he really wants people to make a statement in defense of Meg. He doesn't understand why the palance won't come out in her defense. He thinks it'd make all the world of difference. I don't think it would have made the world of difference. I don't think to it, it would have made any difference.
0: He also notices Will kind of pulling back on the Meg relationship At one point, he and Will are having a heart-to-heart about Diana. And Will's like, I feel like she's been with me, guiding me. And Harry's like, me too. And Will's like, I feel like she helped me create my family. And Harry's like, I feel like she helped me find
1: Meg. And Will's like,
0: "Ah, probably not, though.
1: He wants to propose to her now that she's moved in. Because she basically was like, I'll move in, but you have to propose. And he finds out he needs to ask permission from his grandmother. And he can't believe it. And I'm like, you can't believe it? And then he's like, I guess now that I think about it, my dad did have to get permission to marry Camilla. It never struck me how weird that was. And I was like, of course, because you don't really think about other people. So he's scared to ask permission because Megan's divorced. He's scared he'll get a no. And first he says something to his father about it. And his father's like, well, I don't have enough money for her. And he's like, what do you mean? And he's like, there's just not a lot of money right now. I don't know that I can afford to feed and clothe her. And he's like, are you kidding She doesn't eat so much, and she'll make her own clothes. (laughs) Very suspect. I
0: thought back over the many hinge moments in my life where permission was required, requesting permission from control to fire on the enemy, requesting permission from the Royal Foundation to create the Invictus Games. I thought of all the pilots requesting permission from me to cross my airspace. My life all at once felt like an endless series of permission requests, all of them a prelude to this one. So this gets to the crux of Harry's problem, and it's that he can't believe that he can't do what he wants all the time. These permission requests all feel very reasonable to me. Permission to fire on the enemy? Yeah, let's double check before we kill people. (laughs) Permission to uh, do a whole Olympics? Yeah, that takes funding. I'm sorry you can't just like throw those funds at the wall without any sort of red tape. You did manage to get it done. It's not like you didn't get permission. Permission to fly across my airspace? I don't know, man. That's how planes don't crash into each other.
1: You're not getting me here. Also, it's so funny because to that end, the idea of permission to marry someone. Like, of course, you should be able to marry whoever you want. But the actual ask here is permission to bring on a new employee. Yes. Even though I think it's preposterous and fucked up that it says, like, I don't know that I have money for her right now. Like, y- yeah, you would have found money for Cressida or whatever. I am so interested in the number breakdown of royals. Yeah. They're always acting like it's a lot and nothing. But he says, the truth about Pa is it suddenly became clear to me that this wasn't about money. Pa might have dreaded the rising cost of maintaining us, but what he really couldn't stomach was someone new dominating the monarchy, grabbing the limelight, someone shiny and new coming in and overshadowing him and Camilla.
0: He has a terrible ask when he asks Granny for permission. Yeah. This was awful. He says, I love her very much and I've decided I would like to marry her. And I've been told that or I've been told that I have to ask your permission before I can propose. You should have just said I would like your honor or your blessing or whatever the fuck. And she says, well, if you've been told you have to ask, I suppose I have to say yes. And he's like, does that mean you say
1: yes? And she's like, what the fuck do you think it means? <laughs> yeah, he gets all upset about what does that really mean? And then he's like, oh, I guess I got a yes. Yes. But of course, it's because he didn't ask. He wasn't like, I'd love your. He didn't
0: play the game of saying like, your highness, I would love your blessing. Or
1: even grandma. What do you think? You would never go up to a woman's father and be like, I guess I have to ask your permission to get her hand. You would just be like, oh, okay. It isn't a cute way to ask. No, he didn't do a good job. Anyway, he proposes to her in their backyard. She says Yes. Yada, yada,
0: yada. Oh, my God. Can I say one thing that was horrifying to me? Because of the paparazzi hounding her, she had two rescue dogs. One of them she brought with her to England, but one of them had become so traumatized from the paparazzi hounding her home that she, like, could not relocate that dog, and she had to give it to a neighbor to live a calmer life. I will never marry a royal because I know Bug wouldn't be able to handle it, and the idea of choosing love over bug would it's simply not a question so now that they're engaged they go on their first royal tour and the press loves her yeah he's like wait a second was not every mean story written that wasn't everybody i guess a lot of people really do like her and it's like
1: yeah harry the british press wasn't reality yeah but how often is he hanging out with random hordes of people i guess but the other thing is it's like great that the people love her but it's also scary that the people love her because now his family is going to be pissed that's true There's something where the Fab Four go out, the two couples go out, and people like Meg better than Kate because they thought Meg had a dress that said yes to Me Too, whereas Kate wouldn't acknowledge Me Too or something. Suddenly it becomes apparent that for the rest of their lives, Meg and Kate are going to be compared, and this begins a split.
0: It seems like there, for about two weeks, was a Fab Four. I feel like the way it's painted in the press is that they all got along swimmingly, and I think they got along for appearances very well, and then every now and then when we saw the friction between them, the press jumped on it so hard that it created more friction.
1: So they're planning the wedding and during the planning of the wedding, most of the press is good. People are happy with wedding info. They're like, here's who's doing the flowers, here's who's doing the dress and so they kind of leave them alone. And of course, then there's this fight about what he's going to wear. Will is so mad because Harry's allowed to keep his beard and Harry's allowed to wear the outfit that Will wanted to wear. Willie always thought Granny had a soft spot for me, that she indulged me while holding him to an impossibly high standard because air, spare, etc. It irked him. That's probably very true. So they get into a huge fight before the wedding. He's being a dick up to the wedding. He's not going to come to the night before dinner. Even though he's not the maid of honor or whatever the boy one is. Yeah, the boy of honor. He's not the the boy of honor. He's not the honor boy. The press says that he is in the same way that they pretended Harry was his honor boy. They're getting into fights. Things are tough. He's like really afraid that at his bachelor party, Will is going to get him blackout drunk and then shave him in his sleep. There is a bit of friction because at
0: one point, the palace is toying with the idea of not giving Meghan her own personal security because Harry is now sixth in line. They're like, this is like not really that big of a deal. And he's like, are you fucking kidding me? She's a target. And so that gets squashed, but it left a really bad taste in everybody's mouth.
1: There's also all this drama around the tiara. Originally, Megan was going to wear Diana's tiara, and then his grandmother actually said, why don't you come to my house and pick out a tiara that you like? He's like, I'd never been to my grandma's bedroom before, and we went into her dressing room where all these tiaras were hanging out. His grandma has this woman, Angela, who's like her dresser and confidant and plants stories on her behalf, and she was really pissed that Megan was allowed to have her pick of the tiaras, and they were like, whatever you do, just make sure you do a drive run with the tiara because it's actually really hard to put one on. And they kept trying to get it to do a dress rehearsal. And Angela would not let go of that
0: tiara. So then there's a whole hullabaloo about Princess Charlotte's dress. And Megan is like, can we handle this later? And Kate is like, literally, no.
1: Megan is like, okay, if the dress doesn't fit, there's a tailor at the palace just to, everyone's taking their kids to the palace to get it fitted. And Kate is like, no, she needs a brand new dress from scratch. And I guess Megan has like a breakdown and starts crying.
0: I don't defend Will and Kate at all. I don't think they did a very good job of being supportive family members but I also will say this book very meticulously is like Harry is the good everyone else is the bad and so I wonder what the tone of the conversation is like in the same way we read arguments in every single one of these books where it's like and she unreasonably screeched across the room and I calmly said
1: have a seat let's talk this out you know We have now read a bunch of times that Harry was not there for his brother. And then he's like, I can't believe my brother wasn't there for me. I'm like, you guys were all your own islands, and you have to acknowledge your part in being an island. You guys all picked your teams, and you just have to acknowledge that, like, each team is out for themselves.
0: You can't say, why aren't you on my team just because I'm not on your team. Mm -hmm. So Will almost didn't come to his, like, night before the wedding traditions, and Harry was like, what the fuck? And Will was really playing the, like, dad card
1: And it it was upsetting, but then he ended up coming. They had their wedding. It was beautiful. They were so happy. They were whisked off to a honeymoon. They had amazing two weeks alone, and they came back. Then Meg went on her first solo trip with the Queen, and apparently
0: they bonded and really got along. And then the press was like, Queen and Meg hate each
1: other. Also, he tells a story. They were at some trooping of the color. Kate asked Meg what she thought of the first trooping the color, and Meg joked, colorful. And a yawning silence threatened to swallow us all. I think Harry and Meg fancy themselves funny ones. Mm -hmm.
0: Silly, silly fun-loving sillies. Whereas Kate and Will are very aware of their
1: statuesque nature. They have chosen to buy in the bullshit. I mean, to me, it's also fucking stupid. And that's why in my heart and in my soul, I'm team Meg and Harry, of course. Because to think it's also important to me is the dumbest thing in the world. But also, they cannot be surprised when you go up to somebody who has dedicated their lives, their children's lives, and their futures to behaving by the rules. And to watch somebody, like, think the rules aren't that important, what kind of response did you think you were going to get?
0: There was another, like, misunderstanding where I guess in preparation for the wedding, Kate had said she forgot something. And Meg was like, oh, baby brain. And later, Kate was like, that really hurt my feelings. You shouldn't have talked about my hormones. Meg has conflict with her dad. He's leaking photos to the press she wrote him a letter asking him to stop he leaks that letter and it's just very heartbreaking for her she really has to like mourn the loss of parts of her life and her
1: family then she gets pregnant it had come out in the press the story about the crying over the bridesmaid's dress and they didn't understand what happened and then of course over dinner with will and kate it turns out that will and kate had mentioned the bridesmaid's dress story to camilla and pa and of course now they know who leaked it and you don't say anything to pa that you don't want leaked So now it's like clear that they are waging war against each other. And I will say Will and Kate started it. A lot of the headlines he pulls are Meg's bra strap is showing. Classless Megan. She's wearing that dress. Trashy Megan. Her fingernails are painted black. Goth Megan. She still doesn't know how to curtsy properly. American Megan. Ugh, she shut her own car door. Uppity Megan. Like these are the headlines that you have to learn to roll off your back or you cannot be or she should leave. Yeah. So then he has like a physical fight with Will.
0: Will comes over and asks for a meeting to talk about everything without the girls, and it leads to a physical altercation where Will, like, pushes him, and he's proud of himself for not fighting back. And he just, like, would not hear what Harry was trying to say, but Harry wouldn't hear what Will was trying to say. I
1: mean, he calls Megan rude, abrasive, and she's alienated half the staff. And Harry's like, what are you talking about? Why are you listening to these lies? This is one of those things where he
0: mentions that there was something going on with Will. He does a meticulous job in this book of not throwing anyone under the bus in a way that doesn't pertain to him for the most part. He's not going to lean into any of the other Will rumors that were happening around this time and say like maybe he was dressed because of
1: X, Y, Z. Well, say it, Ashley. Will was cheating on Kate. This book was carefully written. And it's again that double-edged thing. is like as a person, as a civilian on the street, I respect that He was not here to air out dirty laundry that was not his to air out. But at the same time, I think it speaks to his larger problem of not actually caring about helping anybody but himself. Yes.
0: So after this big fight, there's a pretty massive rift. He still can't get over the fact that his family doesn't support him. He says, wasn't that a true constitutional monarchy? Wasn't that real family? Isn't defending each other the first rule of every
1: family? No. You left out my favorite part of that paragraph. Everything I'd been taught, everything I'd grown up believing about the family, about the monarchy, about its essential fairness, its job of uniting rather than dividing was undermined, called into question. When were you taught that? Was it all fake? Was it all just a show? Yes. What about the royal monarchy did you think was essentially fair? Being born into literal royalty? Or did you think it was fair that you got to have this incredible life that was paid for by the people and in exchange you owed them your entire life? Because you also don't think that's fair. What about this fairness did you think was fair? Did you think when he was heir in a spare that was essentially fair? I don't understand. This whole book is about how unfair everything is. What are you talking about the essential fairness of a monarchy?
0: So Megan has her baby. The press is mad at them for not following proper she's in labor protocol. They felt like Harry and Meg got one over on them. Indeed, we had. They felt that in doing so, we'd been bad partners. Astonishing. Did they still think of us as partners? I mean,
1: no, I don't know. I guess around this time, things were bad between Pa and Camilla and Willie and Kate because of all the cheating rumors. And they're like, you're selling us out. We're done dealing with you. They were about to come to blows. Pa's thing is basically like, we're not going to fire our PR person. Grandma has her PR person, which is Angela, the dresser. Everyone in the family gets one Machiavellian weasel. You got a better weasel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So Megan and Harry are like, we got to get out of town. So Elton John is like,
1: come hang out at my house. Very Victoria Beckham core. And this is after they keep having meetings with the family where they're like, you don't understand what's happening to Meg is not like what's happening to you. It's disproportionate to anything. The studies keep coming out and saying the way they're talking about Megan is racist, it's hateful, and it's it's more than anybody else in the family has ever received historically. And it's increasing racism nationwide. And they will not help. So he goes to hang out with Ellen John, and Ellen John's like, well, have you ever thought about suing the newspapers? And Prince Harry's like, I can't. The family lawyer's like really busy and you he won't help me. And Ellen John's like, have you ever thought of a second lawyer? And Harry was like, literally, I hadn't. I didn't know I could get my own lawyer.
0: So they sue the press. They tell the family a couple days beforehand.
1: They're like, hey, we're about to sue the press. And they're like, literally, just don't. And he's like, we're going to. So they do. They specifically were like, don't do that. It's going to hurt the rest of us. They're kind of like, if you make the press mad, they'll come for everybody. They keep going to the palace. And every time the palace is like, we hear you and we're going to help you. And then they just don't get back to them. And that's kind of the pattern for a couple years. So then in November 2019, Meg and Harry are talking about getting
0: away for a while or forever. They like don't really know what's going on. But Meg is like, I have a friend who has a house on an island in Canada and we can just go there in secret and relax for a little bit. So they go there and they're happier than they've ever been until a few weeks in, they get discovered, people descend on them like friggin' vultures and they're just no longer safe again. And that's when they start toying with the idea of actually leaving. And so they go to the palace and they're like, we wanna talk about this. And the palace is like, we're so busy, come back later.
1: And so basically what it is is there's these three people and I can't remember what the word they use in the Oprah interview. What is it? The institution or something. Yeah. And you're like, well, who is the institution? Because I'm sorry, but a 92 year old queen grandma is not pulling the Twitter numbers and like running the PR cost analysis of this all. There's three men that have, he says Machiavellian and taken over all the power, the courtiers. One is in the grandma's ear. And so he calls grandma and is like, I have to talk to you about something. And they're always trying to I guess as much as you want your weasel to protect you, your weasel wants to protect you because the more power you have, the more power your weasel has. (laughs) Am I allowed to say that? No, no, that's true. And so they are very invested in keeping the queen in control and having control over everything. And they don't want Meghan and Harry to leave because it helps everybody to have someone that you can always hate the most. So they are invested in keeping Harry from asking his grandma. They won't let him see the grandma. They don't know what to do. They keep going to the palace and be like, we need help. We need help. And they basically are like totally and then ignoring them. And then every time they're like, we're about to do something. They're like, well, why didn't you ask for help? And so finally, they've been denied. His own dad is like, listen, we can talk about this as soon as I get back from vacation in two months. And they're like, we can't wait another minute. We're going to put something on Instagram. So they put something on Instagram.
0: Saying that they are distancing themselves from the royal family. And that finally sends an emergency meeting in to play where they are they have five options they come up with like plans one through five where number one is things stay the way they are I and we mean, pretend that you
1: just never posted that and we pretend you never posted that option five is fuck off they invite everybody over to like hash it out the palace is trying to get harry and megan to take option one they're like we obviously can't take option one that is untenable for us and they're like okay fine well then we'll do option five and he's like well what about option three and they're like we've talked it out it's not gonna work and then they have all these option five printouts for what the palace is going to say and harry is like can you print out the options for the other ones and the weasel is like my printer's broken and for some reason harry sends a lot of pages being like i went back to the office i tested the printer the printer worked and i'm like <laughs> yeah harry i believed you You didn't have to prove that the printer was broken for me to assume that the palace was not actually hearing you out the whole point of this whole book is that the palace has never heard you out um so option three was option one was we communicate
0: the status quo. Megan, I don't leave. Everyone goes back to normal. Option five was full severance, no royal role, no working for granny, a total loss of security. Option three was somewhere in between. Option three was that they take a step back, spend part of their year living in Canada or somewhere else, and then they still maintain royal security. So here's my problem. I understand why he needs security. I understand that they were not safe, but I also think that this thing he has where he's like I want to still have all of the perks of the palace without having to do any of the royal work that's what option three was
1: I don't think that's true I think they wanted to keep doing their service yeah and I think they would have done it half abroad half in Britain and so like when you say they don't want to do the royal work I think they were happy to show up and shake hands and they would have like done events for the rest of their lives I think what they wanted was just to get out of the Britain press they didn't want to be like in the hot of it all they didn't want people They didn't want to be the scrutiny. I don't think they would have been like, listen, we're not going to show up to your galas anymore. They would have gone to the galas. I know what he wanted them to do. I don't know
0: that it would have made any difference. That's what's difficult because he doesn't actually have any issue with the way things are done overall. He has an issue with the way things affect him personally. And so all of his fix-its and what's-its have to do with like things that would make him feel better and not
1: things that would like fix any sort of system. I mean, he keeps saying even here when they're like hashing it all out at the palace, he's walking around talking about beautiful every room is and how he never noticed how beautiful it was. He goes, these gardens, I thought they're paradise. Why can't we just enjoy them? The crux of Harry's problem is he's like, I would love to be a trust fund kid who does charity. I think he thinks of himself as better than other trust fund kids because he's like, not every trust fund kid wants to do charity. But I would love to do charity with my trust fund. I just don't want any responsibilities. Yeah. So anyway, Meg had already gone to Canada. He meets them in Canada. Of course, they go option five. Security gets pulled. They panic. They're like, we have no money. He explains that he has never had access to his own credit cards. He's never held cash. He has everything essentially done for him. So he doesn't know what to do. They call a security company and are quoted $6 million a year to uphold the level of security they'd already had. This is when Tyler Perry calls them. He's like, well, just come live with me. The border is about to close because of COVID. So they run to Tyler Perry's house. They're there for six weeks. And they're like, it is so fun here. I'm like, yeah, just being like rich, unemployed people, of course it's fun. And then they get discovered by the pops again. So then they figure out what to do. And he's like, we were so panicked. We didn't have any money. We had no idea what to do. Of course, I had the inheritance for my mom, but we couldn't use that. That was for the kids. And I was like, why? Why couldn't you use your inherit? Like, why is that not money to you? Yeah. How are you going to sit here and be like, we had no money except for the millions of dollars that my mom had left me. But I didn't want to touch that. Just touch it
0: and figure out how to make money for your kids later. They're still babies.
1: When you're actually poor and broke, you don't just like sit on millions of dollars and be like, but not that money. So then luckily they found a house in Malibu that was at such a discount. He got it for a really good rate and he was able to cobble together. Wasn't it like $14 million? It was $15 million. He was able to cobble together the down payment. So I was like, no, 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 no. You cobble together money for a Milky Way bar. You cobble together money to get a Coca-Cola. You cobble, you don't cobble
0: together a down payment on a $15 million estate. He really makes a point to say that the monarchy isn't actually that expensive or bad he's like the monarchy actually costs the average british taxpayer the cost of a pint per year and it's like so if you don't have a problem against the monarchy you have a problem against the people specifically like you're mad at camilla you're not mad at the monarchy you're mad at like three people and so overall that's what makes this book so frustrating is that with all of this power and all of this voice he's still like my evil stepmother. She is the root of it all. And it's like, no, the root of it all is systemic racism, classism, and a monarchy that shouldn't exist.
1: So five months later, they're able to sign several corporate partnerships, which would give us the chance to resume our work, to spotlight the causes we cared about, to tell stories where we felt were vital and to pay for our security. Good for you guys. He's really mad that they won't lay down wreaths in his honor for Remembrance Day. And I'm like, you're out of the country, dude. You can't be the good guy and the gone guy. He's like, and it all stems from the fact that my dad wasn't loved as a child. Anyway, so now they live happily ever after. They have a little daughter. They're in Malibu. They're doing their best to plow forward and be the people they always wanted to be. And that's the book.
0: And then granny dies. Pa with King. He like meets up with them. And they're just not going to see eye to eye.
1: Jesus Christ. Final thoughts.
0: My final thoughts are I feel for his story, but I what breaks me off of it is that he only cares about his story and I get it's his memoir. So he's telling his story, but overall I'm just like, it sucks when you read about a person with this much power and influence and opportunity who is so woe is me and like, but who will make change you bitch.
1: He is so the product of a larger system. Like it feels insane to be mad at him for just being such a regular degular idiot idiot because I was like of course that's literally why royalty is fucking stupid because he is just a rando he should have just been a frat boy who like I don't know just got some regular ass job and it's very
0: magnified to me by the fact that he was like okay I went to Africa followed my mom's footsteps and like learned more about the AIDS epidemic there and then I met tijan Mike where I learned more about the issue with poachers there and then I went to war and I learned about you know the way veterans are treated and now I'm 30 and I'm so bored I'm so bored and so I'm just going to go to L.A. and do shrooms. And it's like, did you want to work on any of those issues or no?
1: He shouldn't have a, a platform. We shouldn't care. Abolish the monarchy. This is why it's a shitty system because he is just like a regular nobody idiot. And Meg is just very pretty with little calves and I believe she cooks good salmon. I don't I don't think that means that she should be on the front lines of social progress. I feel very like the enemy of the my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Where this book, he's mad at the monarchy. Not really. He's not mad at the monarchy, but I do think he's... In his personal vendetta, he's coming at the entire system by yeah. accident as like a casualty. And then I also think he hates the Murdoch news system. And I'm like, true. the press, It is the press's fault. It is the monarchy's fault. So in that sense, I think if it's between you and them, I'd rather you win. Right. I don't want them That's to the win. That's the thing is I don't hate him.
0: I'm not furious with him. I'm just like not impressed by him
1: or still that interested in him let them all crumble fuck them all fuck them all that being said there are some goofy moments in this book and we will be getting more into the goofy parts on the patreon talking about eating talking about all the silly little we, there's this whole story about where he's like they call us blue buds but when i saw my blood it wasn't blue it was red and i'm like yeah did you think that was literal idiot <laughs> i mean he's a dummy and we'll get more into that on the patreon and we love you guys so much Love you guys. And most of all, I love our five-star reviewers. Thank you to Mrs. Flask.
0: I'll take a nip. Jenna Jab. Jab and cross, baby. Thank you to Rem839. I hope to have 839 REM cycles today and for you, too. Thank you to Gracie Vaughn's son. You are my sun and my moon. Thank you to Baby Belle. Oh, I love the cheesy, cheesy broad. Thank you to G. Browning, my favorite color of the rainbow. Thank you to Rachel Wormy, my squirmy, squirmy darling. Thank you to d Sprung, You have got me D-Sprung. Thank you to anonymous one 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 two 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 two. I love you no matter who you are out there. Thank you to Big Z Nation, my favorite country and the only one that I'll support a queen of. Thank you to MBC Carpenter81. Thank you for carpenting that shelf. You did a great job. Thanks to you're the voice. No, you're the voice that guides me. Thank you to Vic Beta. You're an alpha to me. Thank you. Happy birthday, Molly. Happy birthday, Molly. Thanks, Chivaldiya. I'll cheer for whatever chival you want to cheer for. Thank you to Millie562. I appreciate you milling all that oat. Thanks, Robert's Farm. I uh, thank you for having a place for the oat to be milled. Thank you, World Traveler. Oh, I can't wait to hear about your travels. I appreciate you, Warren Flowers. This review warrants some flowers. Thank you to Elizabeth Weenie. You are the cutest little hot dog. Thank you to OK2. I OK you as well. And Anaphasia. I hope someday we can sit down and watch Fantasia. Oh, and thank you, Witchworm. You are the spookiest worm in town. Love you guys. Bye.